This episode is brought to you by Stone B&B. Hey, frugal consumer, for your next road trip or family vacation, don't get skinned by those ritzy per noctum rates at La Quinta and Motel 5. The new shared lodging economy lets you use an app to rent a room from a total stranger. Take advantage of the market of a surplus of creepy loners with a spare room and a slightly too earnest desire for company. But beware, there is a potential downside to this convenience. That's right, you know what it is, Mer uh, shoddy construction. How do you know that your mere wood frame caravansary won't collapse on your bed in the middle of the night? With all your itinerary worries, wouldn't it be great to scratch that concern off your list? So schedule your next overnight accommodation with Stone B&B. Stone B&B only lists flop houses at the sites of 3,000-year-old stone hinges and burial chambers, assembled entirely from chalk and limestone monoliths. When you rent from Stone B&B, you can sleep soundly with the assurance that your room has already seen the extinction of a dozen empires and human cultures, and it'll outlive you. When you arrive, there's no time-wasting bother of picking up a key from a landlord. Just walk in, shoo away the foxes or bears or langer monkeys nesting there, and best of all, no more worry that some Norman Bates night manager is watching you through peepholes. There's no promise of privacy like yard-thick stone walls crowding around you from all sides. And thank you, Stone BNB, for sponsoring the Rereading Wolf podcast. This episode is brought to you by the support of generous listeners just like you. You can learn how to be one of them at patreon.com slash rereadingwolf. And thank you, listener patrons, for supporting the Rereading Wolf podcast. Warning. The following discussion is deliberately riddled with spoilers and unhinged speculation on this nearly 40-year-old book, Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun. You can't read a Gene Wolfe story. You can only reread a Gene Wolfe story. Welcome to Rereading Wolf. We don't pretend that this is the first time you and we have read these books. We want to understand them in as much detail as possible, and that means considering the works as a whole. Hi, I'm James Wynn. And I'm Craig Brewer. Hi, Craig. Hello. Hello, hello, hello. <laughs> well, welcome back. Welcome, welcome back. Um, just a week ago, I guess, I uh, was at South by Southwest. And, and you met some you know, people. Yes, I like. did. Uh, I met uh, Timothy Thomas and Scott Pigman uh, in downtown Austin. We had a nice hangout. Uh, me and uh, Scott Pigman went to see the Vandaliers, which is always a good show. And then uh, the next day, me and Ryan Manning met, and uh, we did a reader interview. So that was a lot of fun. So it was, yeah, it was a great, it was a great week. I had hoped to do kind of a, uh, a little little WolfCon in South by Southwest, but uh, you know, you you take what you can get, and that was pretty good. I had a great time. It was a really, really, really good week, all told. We were still thinking Austin would be a good site for. A little mini WolfCon too, if not South by Southwest, at least if something, one of the other ones, Armadillo Con or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I know we have a lot of readers actually uh, in uh, in Austin, so it, it might be workable, mm -hmm. Armadillo Con. Not this year, I guess. Uh, it's a little hard to get it together now, but, but soon, soon. Yep. And if we are going to plan for something in the fall, we need to start planning now. So if yes. you have a good candidate, because as we've said, we're not going to Chengdao for the next WorldCon, then please let us know. Yeah, yeah, wait, wait, I don't know. If we did something during, like like during Labor Day weekend, when we could all get around and watch the uh, award ceremony for the Hugos, that it's might true. be fun. That's yeah. true. 
Yep, that would be something. And they are going to have a lot of the content streaming, um, a lot more than usual. I know they try to put a lot of it online, like a lot of the panels and things, but I mm-hmm. think they're going to try and do even more this year. And oh, so cool. even if you're, they even lowered the membership for virtual just to like, it's like $2 or something. You know, you still have to get pay the $50 for the the annual, you know, membership right. thing. But then to get the virtual ticket, it's literally only two bucks. So yeah, it's usually it's like 15 yeah. or 20 or something. So right. Definitely trying to encourage people to at least watch a lot of the WorldCon stuff. So we'll see. That's a good idea. Yeah. That's a good yeah idea. Okay. Yeah. If someone has some ideas, they should probably reach out to us in all the ways that you know how. Oh, other news. The uh, pre-order for the new Wolf Collection went live. So yeah, yeah. Dead Man, other horror stories, Subterranean Press. What can I say? I got mine. Yep. Did mine. And also the Book of Fullogen yes. illustrated book. All the finished his Kickstarter, blew right through all of its uh, Kickstarter goals. Uh, I got mine. I don't know about y'all. You know, one thing I was going to ask, the uh, the Uncollected Stories collection doesn't list an editor. Really? It does not. And I was trying to figure oh, out. Wait, do, well, for collections, do they do that? Not necessarily, but when it's something like this that sort of. You know, but, but for who's going to select it in that? Yeah, case? who selects them? I know, and I know it could be you know his family or. Whoever. Oh, I know his family is uh, involved in as far as the, selecting the stories. Yeah, usually though, I think they'll mention it. And I, I, I had reached out to them, and uh, a lot of people ask, "Hey, what are the stories going to be for that collection?" And apparently, we don't know, which makes me think this is my theory. Uh, I don't have any insight in this, but my theory is that the more of y'all who pre-order the more chance we're going to get of more stories, maybe even all of them. So, you know, step up. So Wolf at the Door, the uncollected one, then there's the Horror Stories collection from Subterranean Press. There's a book of Fullogen coming out. The the Kickstarter's finished. That's closed, so you'll have to wait until it comes out for real. Yep. Good wolf news for that one. Yeah, nice. boy. A lot of wolf content suddenly coming out, which is really good news. So you ready to get started on this uh, yes. for the comments? Yes, All right. indeed. Well, we have a correction. Hey, you was wrong. You was wrong. On Reddit, Christopher Taylor says, I'm afraid that as a matter of professional pride and pedantry, I couldn't let this pass. You misunderstood the classification of saber-toothed cats. <laughs> I said that Smilodons were not true cats, that they were more closely related to like weasels, mongooses, and well, hyenas. But uh, Christopher says classic saber-toothed cats, including Smilodon, are indeed true cats, albeit perhaps not members of the crown group of living cats. Both are in the family uh, Philidae, living cats form the subfamily Philinae, whereas saber-toothed cats belong to the subfamily. I'm not going to even say it. it's long. But it, it, Machiarodontia, which sounds suggests that it has to do with having probably means saber teeth or something or very long teeth. Anyway, the Philiformia are a broader group of carnivorans and include cats and the animals you mentioned, rather than being a group that excludes cats. Where you may have been misled is that there are two fossil carnivoran families that were historically included within the Philidae family and would have superficially looked a lot like cats, but whose affinities are now considered more uncertain. Both these families 
included forms that have been thought of as saber-toothed cats, but as I said, Smilodon itself is not one of them. And Christopher says, it's not really important to the main flow of the episode, especially when I remember that we're not even talking about actual Smilodons, but some imported alien analog. <laughs> yeah. well, well, maybe, maybe a resurrected species, who knows? Anyway, I'm happily to stand corrected, and I'm glad that you did, because I look forward to the corrections probably as much as any comments that we get. Let's see what else uh, on Facebook. Austin Beeman says there's an established rationale for posting dead corpses of mammals to ward off others of their kind. He says yeah, this that is if interesting. You, yeah, he says if you have rats that are invading your garden, a non-pesticide method is to spread rat body parts around your garden, which is creepy. However, biologist Jeremy Sheets says that spreading carcasses out or putting an animal out to starve to death, like the eclectics were doing with the big cats, he equates this with sympathetic magic. He said that these are actually good ways to attract predators. Hmm. However, he says that animal control techniques like that do sometimes work. He says that rodents will avoid food near dead rodents. Uh, this is a bit of a confirmation of Austin Beeman's comment. And he says some herbivores will avoid vegetation that's sprayed with blood, but it needs to be pretty fresh. Dead birds, and this is really good, dead birds splayed out upside down will deter vultures and corbids. They uh, associate it with disease or bad food. And he says this is a technique used on airports. I didn't know that. Yeah, I did not know that either. Terrifying. And, I wonder what's on the roof of JFK. <laughs> now you know. Now. Yeah. <laughs> Pay attention next time you're taking off. Yeah. yeah. So these were all pretty interesting, but I'm going to give the prize to Finnegan Matthews, who posted this reference from Gustave Flaubert's historical novel Salambo in 1862 <laughs> about the mercenary revolt that occurred after the First Punic War when Carthage couldn't pay its mercenaries after losing to the Romans. It was based mostly on the Greek historian Polybius's history written about 100 years after the fact. Anyway, Flaubert's novel, Chapter 2, we get the following. They were marching through a wide passage formed by two chains of reddish hillocks when a nauseous odor struck their nostrils, and they believed that they saw something extraordinary at the top of a carob tree, a lion's head standing above the foliage. Hastening toward it, they found a lion attached to a cross by its four limbs like a criminal. Its enormous muzzle hung to his breast, his forepaws half hidden beneath the abundance of his mane. They were widely spread apart like the wings of a bird under the tightly drawn skin. His ribs protruded and his hind legs were nailed together, but were slightly drawn up. Black blood had trickled through the hairs and the, collected in the stalactites at the end of his tail which hung straight down the length of the cross. The soldiers crowded around the beast, amusing themselves by calling out consul and citizen of Rome and threw pebbles into his eyes to drive away the swarming gnats. A hundred paces farther on, they came across two more lions, then presently appeared a long row of crosses supporting yet other lions. Some had been dead a long time, for nothing remained against the wooden crosses save the debris of their skeletons, and their half-corroded jaws were distorted in horrible grimaces. Others were in such huge size that the shafts of the crosses bent beneath the great weight and swayed in the wind 
so that flocks of ravenous vultures circled high in the air without daring to alight. Thus it was that the Carthaginian peasantry revenged themselves when they captured ferocious beasts by such examples to terrify others. It terrifies me. I mean, that's <laughs> that's even more gruesome than what Wolf describes by a long shot. So, yeah, great catch. Yeah, yeah. The action and the purpose is all pretty close tie with Severian's mm-hmm. encounter. And, yeah. and I consider this to be ultimate source of Wolf's theme, unless an unlikely better one emerges. We do know, you know, from Proust that Wolf had an interest in French literature. Yeah. Uh, and Finnegan says that the novel quote, feels like an influence on mercenary armies and elephant battles depicted in the new sun. Ancient hmm. Carthage would give the Commonwealth a run for its money as far as decadence and brutality are concerned, and Flaubert knew a thing or two about inverting Christianity. Well done, sir. Yeah. Very cool. So I haven't heard much about Flaubert and Wolf, and I don't remember if there are any other stories that people have specifically tied I don't. I did a search. And I didn't get anything on that, um, and it didn't come up in Manus's uh, chapter guide. Yeah. So I don't. I think definitely this is new. worth following up. Yeah. On Reddit, Mike Farrar says. Excellent episode. Another transition chapter that feels like not much happens, but is jammed packed, and I'll agree with that. Now I suggested that. Severian's attitude toward the suffering Smilodon seemed out of character for Severian, who only the night before left Jolenta to be potentially killed by Talos and Voldanders. But Mike sees it another way. And I suggested that, you know, maybe the claw, which is making the Papa Bull more gentle, is having a similar effect on Severian. But Mike says, quote, freeing the Smilodon, I think it does go to Severian's character. Severian is a man raised as a torturer and is slowly rejecting torture. He couldn't let Thecla suffer and gave her the knife. He revived and cared for Triskali. Once he pacified the man-apes, he healed the arm of one, and here he frees the Smilodon. Well, you know, so, so, so Mike is saying, you know, Severian is capable of empathy to other creatures. And he goes on. He says, he can't keep the Smilodon because of the bull. He has no water to give it, so all he can do is free it from torture and imprisonment and wish it luck. And he tries to resume his old life in Thrax. The claw weighs on him until he rejects torture again and frees Syriaca, heals Jader's sister, and quits his job. He says, I think the contrasting the Smilodon situation to let Jalinta be hurt by Talos is unfair. Severian knows Jalinta loves Talos and wants to be with him. He doesn't know about the feel-good drugs that Talos gave her, and he doesn't know if Talos altered her mind to bind her to him. All he knows is that she loves him, and it would torture her to deny her every chance to convince Talos to take her with him. Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. Mike makes some good points, yep. right? But I think this justification goes a little too far, in my opinion. I, I don't really read that scene as Severian trying to be at all merciful to Jalinta and... Dorcas is simply appalled that he left her alone with them. Yeah, that that one's a harder a harder pull because and and Wolf does really stress more the sympathy later, right? Mm-hmm. Like where it really is just obvious and on the surface that yeah, Severian's like, no, my feelings have changed towards her now. Yeah, at, at yeah. This later point, yeah. Specifically when as her her beauty fades, it's, yeah. it's, 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 it's my say, yeah. 
Mike also has an explanation for why the claws seem to heal and rejuvenate everything in this chapter, except Jalinta. He says, Jalinta can't be healed because she doesn't want to be healed. The claw can't help her. The Kamean can't help her. She wants Talos or Oblivion. It's Talos, not Severian, that is the greatest sadist of the Book of the New Sun. That is arguable. Uh, Talos is anti-life. He even hates flowers. <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> true. It's true. Uh, you know, in my own mind, I do find it credible that using the claw on Baldanders might well have begun to reverse the modifications he'd done in his body. And those changes might have looked very much like he was sickening and dying. And he might have even died. Uh, Jolenta might be being healed by the claw. And it looks like it's making Jolenta die as the waitress is restored. Hmm. But then again, you know, when he's trying to use it specifically on Jolenta, it doesn't glow. So yeah. I don't know. It's up in the air. I do think we are supposed to notice that everything is benefiting from the claw in this chapter, except for Jolanta. Except her. Yeah. yeah. But uh, Christopher Taylor has a different point of view about my uh, claw taming theory. He says, the affair with the bull always stands out for me as the clearest indicator that Dorcas is not 100% correct in her suggestion that the claw functions by shifting through time. Presumably in taming the bull, Severian is not returning it to a previous state. So, yeah, that's a valid point. Mm -hmm. uh, she might be correct in what it does in healing, or maybe she's not, but there is something else going on with the taming of the bull and also in the turning of the water to wine. Yeah. And the yeah, man's hand doesn't grow back, right? It's right, right. Well, it stops I mean, bleeding. And you know. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it does grow back. We don't really see because, yeah, because Severian doesn't, for some yeah. reason, chooses not to tell us about it. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. On Facebook, Nathan Hester po posted a YouTube video as a hint to the authenticity of the pewter straw that the herdsman was drinking from. He says, I knew about this beforehand because I once drank mate with my siblings years ago after my brother spent some time in South America. But in the video, we are told that people traditionally drink yerba mate from a gourd, which is specifically cured in order to take out the bitter taste of, you know, drinking from a gourd. And you also drink from a metal straw, which is called a bombilla, which has a filter in the bottom to keep you from sucking in tea leaves. So have you, did you, when you drank mate, did you, did I have, you use a straw? I, I was trying to remember. I don't remember it going that way, but I was, once he wrote that, I was trying to remember like the times that I had, did they give me a special straw or something? And I honestly don't remember. Well, maybe if you, if it wasn't pleasurable for you to recount, maybe they didn't. And that maybe was so. They're a big mistake. Yeah. And I actually have a little bag of mate in there still somewhere, but I haven't made it in a long time because I do remember it was kind of gritty. <laughs> so, <yeah. laughs> kind of like Turkish coffee, you know, like if you have right. like where you actually just boil it and then pour the grounds out and you always exactly. get a few of them. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, Philip Bonner said, I had a period of being habituated to mate and I would counsel against it. It is stronger seeming than coffee, the active ingredient being a stereoisomer of caffeine molecule. You can get really cranked up on the stuff. As an addiction, I found it more difficult to manage than coffee with sleepless nights and moments of paranoia. Nice. <laughs> when I finally decided to quit it, there were worse headaches and withdrawal pain than I've ever experienced with coffee. Well, that explains a lot about Severian, really. <laughs> uh, Jeremy Sheets. also pointed out that the ancient Sumerians drank beer from reed straws 
And people have been using straws for almost 6,000 years, at least for that purpose. Uh, totally as an aside, the earliest record of beer was in Iran, about 4,500 BC. And the Sumerian patron goddess of brewing is Ninkasi, uh, or Holy Ninkasi, I guess. Uh, she's usually listed alongside with the gods uh, Nanima, uh, the patron goddess of writing, and Nimada, the patron goddess of snake charming. Now... Let me refund that 30 seconds of lost time to you all. Um, and I will do that by stepping back in time a bit on Facebook. Stephen Frug. And I can do the Is listening to the parting chapter episode, chapter 26 of Claw. And he has some words of warning and a correction for some of our takes in that chapter. Like all of these, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to do better about putting these links into the show notes, and these will all be there. So he says, I'm going to beat on a drum I've played often before. The threat of close reading and looking for clues is to miss what is there, not as subtle hint to rereaders, but because it is necessary for first-time readers. There's no reason to assume some subtle point if something is necessary to tell the basic story. And he sums it up saying, so I suggest as one negative side effect to your generally fabulous method, you have a tendency to overread and miss the obvious as you did here. And I, I, I'm starting with this in order to acknowledge that Frug is definitely correct, right? About the perils of our method. We spoke oh, yeah. in the past about how our process can often lead to missing the intended oh, yeah. humor of a situation. And of course, overreading what is a common turn of phrase or finding an association in the etymology of a word or name that Wolf never intended or drawing an unintended conclusion from one of those associations. These are all, you know, real risks. Yep. We're trying to make a map that avoids another peril that is often occurred on the earth list of people developing theories that glossed over important or potentially important parts. But as I've said, a map is not reality. It can't be in order to be useful. So since we can't do both, I think, Craig, that we are both relieved that we do have listeners uh, like Frug who insist on stepping back, drawing conclusions from macro analysis rather yep. than micro analysis. Yep. And, yep. and that said, we definitely are aware that we are we are erring in an opposite direction. We are. Of other yes, yeah. that is the plan. <laughs> Intentionally erring. And yeah. Exactly. <laughs> well, th that said, let's talk about his specific criticism directly. In the chapter, The Parting, there's that passage where it, it is said of the conciliator that the story goes that he once took a dying woman by the hand and a star by the other, and from that time forward, he had the power to reconcile the universe with humanity and humanity with the universe, ending the old breach. And we theorized that this seemed to be intended as a hint that Severian himself was a conciliator, although only a highly suspicious first-time reader would see it that way. And in the rereading Wolf subreddit post on the episode, Mantis, a Michael Andre Gerisi, op opined that this might not be about Severian being the conciliator at all. So go check that out. And Frug wants to expand on that argument. He says, the only connection, I think, is roses, which might be suggestive to a rereader. But even then, the symbolism is cloudy enough that it's hardly that big a clue. Indeed, I myself think it hardly counts as a clue at all. More importantly, though, 
this misses what the passage does on the most basic level. It makes it clear that the conciliator is Jesus, or at any rate, a, a myth very much like Jesus. Fruit points out that at this point, we've only had two references to the conciliator. Agia talks about him, and Severian mentions him at Morwenna's execution. And Fruit says, both of these make it clear that the conciliator is a mythic religious figure. He's a master of power. He will come again as the new son and so forth. But those are common to a lot of myths. And Agia, you know, she did say he did miracles, but lots of mythic figures did this. All of which is to say that it is in Dorcas's discussion that we get really solid information that the conciliator is Christ, either a memory of Christ that we are familiar with or a parallel myth or something. She says, quote, he was not a human being at all, not a cacogen, but the thought tangible to us of some vast intelligence to whom our reactuality was no more than the paper theaters of the toy sellers, which is a good summary of the incarnation, he says. And she says, he had the power to reconcile the universe with humanity and humanity with the universe, ending the old breach, which is a good summary of atonement for original sin. And she mm -hmm. says, he had a way of vanishing, then reappearing when everyone thought he was dead, reappearing sometime after he had been buried, which is a good summary of the resurrection. And those three central doctrines of Christianity, none of which were clearly associated with the conciliator before. So Frug thinks that's the point of Dorcas's explanation. Hmm. He says, I mean, maybe on rereading, we're supposed to go, aha, the rose symbolism, but that's a bonus, not the main intent of the passage. I think it's straightforward indication that the conciliator is Jesus. What about saying that he has appeared as an animal. That could either be a distorted reference to the idea of Jesus as a sacrificial lamb or an indication how the myth has been distorted over time or even a nod toward Aslan. And the roses are, I think, you know, straightforwardly to associate him with Holy Catherine and not for any other purposes. And then, you know, there was a lot of interesting and fruitful discussion in the comments. Cecilia Michael Lopez suggested that the reference to the conciliator appearing as an animal could be a distortion of Lamb of God or the Lion of Judah, the Holy Spirit appearing in the form of a dove, and pelicans, interestingly, are Christian symbol uh, going back to the second century. But before that, in Egypt, they were associated with resurrection and a ward against snakes. <laughs> Christ. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, Frug follows up with the comment that Rather than a hint that Severian is considered, he says, a simpler explanation would be that the features of Christ's story have become amalgamated with more recent memories of Severian's sojourn related in Earth, the New Sun. Such amalgamation would be consistent with a process we have other examples of in Book of the New Sun, like the tale of the student and his son. Yeah. And I think that's probably right. Like, I, in the end, I think, yeah, it's supposed to remind you enough of the Christian story, but also be different enough that you're supposed to just make that connection. I think that's probably right. Just like what the Brown Book stories mostly do is, you know, show you enough to make you recognize it, but then make it weird too at the same time. And But is it is it is it really an either or situation? Not no, not at all. Not necessarily. Yeah. I, I mean, mean it can, plenty of times, but but I think definitely the effect, and I'm I'm quite sure the effect on me the first time I read it was oh oh yeah that's that's a that's a very christiany kind of thing to say so yeah 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 maybe 
<laughs> well, certainly for a first-time reader. I don't, I'm not sure, you know, I'm not sure I I buy in with uh, Frug's rejection uh, that the uh, Associated with the Varian is not intended, but it's it's not the only way to take it. It's not the yeah. only thing going on. And yep. as typical, that's usually true for these passages, right? Yeah. Yep. Yes, indeed. Let's see. On Facebook, new listener Greg Fabic has a theory regarding Severian's encounter with Triskali. He thinks that Triskali represents Cerberus. Instead of three heads, he has three legs. It's, you know, it's one of those, oh, yeah, hmm, eh, you know, theories. Until you think about it, Craig. Greg notes that Triskali guards the entrance to Severian's passage to the underworld. And he says Triskali also marks that transition from boy to man, according to Severian himself. Uh, Triskali also marks the transition from torturer to healer. Triskali marks the transition into an afterlife as a man and healer, a reborn Severian from his baptism. So, okay, Greg, this is really good because a lot of people don't realize that Cerberus is in fact a liminal deity, a divine guardian of gateways, just like Janus just like Cronus, Old Father Time, and per Robert Graves, and perhaps Hamlet Smill, I can't remember, the rising of the dog star Sirius, the brightest star in the sky, and Canis Major heralded the vernal new year. And I don't know if Greg knows this or not, but it led to an interesting conversation. And Adrian DeForest says, well, that makes Valeria Persephone, which is very astute. And then who is Hades, I asked. And Greg liked Adrian's point as much as I did. And he said, she's, if she's Persephone, then the strange claim of never going up in the building she lives in makes sense. And she will also reign over and survive the transition from winter to spring when the new sun returns. And some will say, hey, what, she survived the flood? Yes, yes, Craig. As I noted in Severian's conversation with Adillo, Severian says in Earth of the New Sun that Valeria survived the flood. He says he can feel it. And so, when this sort of thing comes up, I like to speculate just how far Wolf might have taken it. So I asked, so who is AIDS? And remember, the myth of Persephone, also meant, by the way, is that she was abducted by Hades. And her mother, Demeter, weeps over her loss, and the earth begins to grow barren. And the earth, you know, just like the earth in the, with the dying sun. And then Hades cuts a deal so that she spends six months with her and six months you know, in the underworld, uh, That's which is the fall and winter. And Greg says, well, maybe Typhon. And, you know, he gets some into some spoilers of other Earth novels. And another possibility, he says, is Severian. Potentially, he says, if an alternate timeline, you know, Hades as an autark who's neutered, the, the ruler of winter. Note that Valeria Persephone seems to live outside of time. And in this state, she is a quantum character, he says, whose fate is not determined. Same with Severian. His, his futures are a battleground that higher powers are trying to influence. Well, I propose, you know, maybe Aniri, but I admit I like Craig Severian for reasons of my own, as anyone who has listened this far will be able to guess. It is, after all, Severian who is consistently equated with death. But naturally, these astute listeners will guess. I, I don't mean it was our Severian who put her in the atrium of time. But I want to take it further. I think there could be value, not in equating Valeria with Persephone, but in equating her to Eurydice, the wife of Orpheus, or even better, with Hercules, 
who had to go to the underworld to get Cerberus to rescue Theseus, Jonas maybe, and to rescue the woman Alcestis. I don't know, but there's definitely a lot to build a theory there. I'll get back to you on that. I definitely like the idea of the first variant rescuing Jonas from the mirror world. So anyway, Craig. No, it's very, very cool. Very cool. It's, yeah, I, I like the possibilities. Yeah, yeah. So also, uh, Rod McDowell on Facebook recommends Apulseus. How do you pronounce that? How do you that pronounce his name? Know. I don't, I've yeah. never had to say his name out loud. I don't know. Um, Apuleius? Apuleius. I think I it's Apuleius. I Let's, think it is Apuleius and I'm trying to think. Yeah, because I always get him mixed up with Asclepius, I think, but Apuleius. No, no, that's not, definitely not that. Apuleius. Yeah, his, uh, the, his book, The Golden Ass. Mm-hmm. He, he likes it as a key to reading the book of the new son, and hopefully he'll write an essay on that sometime. Got my, my old geekiness going because that was, that was part of my dissertation research was ancient romances and things like that. So, Heliodorus and Apuleius and... Brought back good memories. <laughs> you keep the crooks and charlatans in business, babe. But do you appreciate your patronage? So I'm going to give a very special thank you this time to all the people who signed up for Patreon. This is the longest break we've had between episodes, and we apologize for that. Life just got busy. But we also probably have one of the biggest groups of new listeners on the Patreon site. So that's kind of humbling. Thank you very much, and we promise to do better. So we have our new journeyman. So thank you to Alex Feinberg, Tim Pickrell, Diana Brewster, Platini Opera, William Ansley, and Nick, just Nick. Then a very special thank you to our new master patrons, Mike Kalman, Dave Weldon, well done. Corkut Galay, cool Carl Halbjornson, Paul Potts, and Victor Del Rio. As always, we incredibly appreciate all the help from Patreon, and like I said, we're particularly humbled this time because we got so much love, even when we were having busy lives outside of the podcast. So thank you guys so much. Thank you to everyone for sticking with us, and we promise to get back on a more regular schedule shortly. Otherwise, please feel free to check out the Patreon site, patreon.com slash rereadingwolf, and check out all the extra episodes, the extra bonus that we're adding there to the end of every regular episode where we talk about an uncollected wolf story and other treats scattered around. So Severian and Dorcas and Jolenta are going to head out, and they're they're trying to, as I recall, they're trying to get to uh, Talos and Baldanders, but on the way, they pass through an old stone town where they have to meet somebody again. Yeah. yeah. So many quinces in this book. Chapter 30, the badger again.
Just as a quick little aside, if there is some noise behind me while we're, I'm talking tonight, I apologize. My, <laughs> my children are having a sleepover, and even though I keep asking them to be quiet, they're having a lot of fun. So we're uh, going to try to talk during the lulls and also do some magic plug-in noise reduction and stuff. We'll see. <laughs> but if you occasionally hear things, it's not that you're hearing ghost noises. You're hearing a bunch of adolescents. So, okay. <laughs> You're not, you're not actually, you're not recording in a, a hotel lobby. No, so, no, yeah. unfortunately that, that might be, might be quieter. So, yeah. okay. So the last chapter ended in the morning with Severian and Dorcas setting out from the herdsman's hut on a pair of destriers. Last night was the evening after they split from Talos and Baldanders. So probably about one month since the feast of Holy Catherine. Now, remember that Severian has asked the herdsmen the direction of Lake Diaturna. He said that they'd have to go through the Stone Tower. They're trying to get to Lake Diaturna because they want to catch up with Talos and Baldanders and make him, you know, give Jalinta her injections again, right? So the herdsmen had told Severian that, yes, there is a city, but no people. But still, Severian had hoped it would be more like a village, uh, something like Saltus, maybe someplace with a little outpost at least. What we found instead was scarcely the remnant of a town. Coarse grass grew beneath the enduring stones that had been its pavements, so that from a distance it seemed hardly different from the surrounding pampa. Fallen columns lay among its grass like the trunks of trees in a forest devastated by some frenzied storm. A few others still stood, broken and achingly white beneath the sun. Lizards with bright black eyes and serrated backs lay frozen in the light. The buildings were mere hillocks from which more grass sprouted and soil caught from the wind. So they just keep following the road northwest, right? Yep, it keeps going. For the first time, I became conscious of the mountains ahead. Framed in a ruined arch, they were no more than a faint line of blue on the horizon. Yet they were a presence as the mad clients on the third level of our oubliette were a presence, though they were never taken up a single step, or even out of their cells. <laughs> Lake Diaturna lay somewhere in those mountains. So did Thrax. The Pellerines, so far as I'd been able to discover, wandered somewhere among their peaks and chasms, nursing the wounded of the endless war against the Ashians. That too lay in the mountains. There hundreds of thousands perished for the sake of a pass, but now we had come to a town where no voice sounded but the ravens. Although we had carried water in skin bags from the herdsman's house, it was nearly gone. So Severian is basically just kind of mapping out all of the, the continent at yeah. this point, right? Yep. Yeah. And, yeah, and even with even callbacks to the Ublat from where he's come. Yeah. And it also strikes me, though, how he really is saying, like, so much of everything else that's going to happen here in the really in the next two books happens in and just beyond these mountains. And it never yeah. really caught me before that. Yeah. You we kind of have like these plains and a, a river, uh, you know, fields and whatnot. And then the second two books really are housed in mountains. I mean, I think we all know the mountains from uh, his moment with Typhon, of course, and then all the, the autarchs carved into the mountains, but here, everything else that happens really is happening in the context of these mountains and the statues that have, they've been carved into and all of that. So it's a, a, just a good thing to keep in mind that there is really a sort of setting shift between um, the two halves of the, the whole four books. Yeah. You mentioned the halves while they're walking through these ruins, this is being set up as kind of a pivot point where you get a montage 
a mental montage of all the things that happened from where Severian came from and where he is going. Yeah. Uh, he's going to go to the war. He's going to go to the mountains. He's going to go to Lake Diaturna. Yeah. And there's something, I don't know, ominous or, or just sort of pressing about that, that line where he says something about how it's, um, how th hundreds of thousands had perished for the sake of a pass. Like it's just right. that, that that's what he's looking for. That's what he's going to do is be find mm -hmm. that pass through these things to something else and how tragic that can be. So anyway, it's, it's kind of a cool passage. I, I like it. But they are moving forward and Jolenta is getting worse, not better. Severian and Dorcas are sure that if they don't find a real place to stay by nightfall, Jolenta will die. But then as the sun sets, or as Severian puts it, just as Earth began to roll across the sun, hmm. they come to a broken sacrificial table whose basin still caught the rain. The term is interesting. Uh, Zavarian knows what he means by a sacrificial table. Its purpose and meaning is apparently part of the Commonwealth, but we can only guess. It includes a basin, a sink. So I suppose, you know, it's a, a stone table where people sacrifice animals. But I can't help but think of the sacrificial rock from the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. Yeah, I think that's probably going to hit a bunch of people's minds right there. Like mm -hmm. this is the, the point of turning, right? And it, it, it works because that's sort of the climax of Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, right? And mm -hmm. Wolf, Wolf knows this stuff. He knows who's going to be reading his books. Like I, I feel like there has to be something a little bit intentional there. It's just that this moment is not the climax, right? This is a change. You know, we're mm -hmm. right in the middle of everything. And Severian's going to have some experience in just a little bit that is shocking and sort of opens his eyes to maybe a little bit more of what he's involved in, but he's not sure. But there is something about that, that moment of there's like revelation is just around the corner. Like that's, that's what it feels like with the Lion, Witch and Wardrobe call out. Yeah. That's one thing. The other thing though, is something about that basin is weird, right? And that's, you point out, you know, he says sacrificial altar, but that's, or sacrificial table, but yeah, we don't really know what that is. Cause then to say, and it's basin at the bottom, like I keep expecting to find, you know, something that says, Oh yeah, the Aztec sacrificial tables always had a place <laughs> to collect the blood underneath them or something, which right. maybe, but I feel like this is much more another moment where Wolf is, you know, using words that make us think one thing and then adding some detail that shows like, Oh, well that's totally something it else. Might, it might be something else. Yeah. yeah. But in this case, the basin is filled with stagnant, stinking rainwater. Uh, but it's the only water there is. So they give some to Jolinta and then she immediately vomits it up. Yeah. Now this is, but you know, the idea of they of putting Jolinta herself maybe on the sacrificial table is uh, Jolinta at some, in this chapter structurally, is she somehow a, a sacrifice? Yeah. And I don't know. I don't know. Does... I don't know. But to make her drink it, though, is to sort of connect her with it. Right. And right. then the fact that he vomits it up, she's rejecting something about that. So, um, yeah. You know. So she just like just like the blood would be theoretically uh, dumped into the basin. Mm -hmm. you know, she vomits up the water. Yeah. It's also dumped into the basin. Yeah. So there's a lot of ways you can take that. And it's it's really suggestive, but it's not perfectly clear to me. I think one thing that it does make me think though is that whatever's going on with Jalenta, there's something unfortunately corrupted like not the fact that the sacrifice altar that she's rejecting that i, I mean i don't want to say that sacrifice 
is like usually that scene is like the sign of like pagan religion sort of like pre like you know pre-christian religion and then you get um christianity which the sacrifice is not the same kind of thing it's like not killing an animal anymore it's you know now now god sacrificing himself for others or something but for her to turn against something that's normally seen as a symbol of worship or an offer to the gods and and she not be able to like literally keep that down like it somehow nauseates mm. her it just makes me think that there's something about her that is not necessarily her fault like it's probably it's talus's fault i think that that it's saying but that she's caught up in something unholy Somehow. Well, Talos and Baldinners did sacrifice her. Mm-hmm. They, they oh, yeah, totally. Going, in order to get what they wanted. And mm-hmm. perhaps that's the idea of, of her as the sacrifice. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, she... Sacri- in Christian fashions, we always think of the sacrifice as somehow divine or, or holy. But there's also another way of looking at a sacrifice, one that is uh, is faith without faith mm-hmm. yeah. and, and purely a, a matter of greed. Yep, yep. And that's that's what she's going through. Anyway, like I said, not I have no idea what to actually nail that down to, but I just think it's such a cool moment with all these suggestive mm-hmm. little things. Yeah, I agree. The moon rises, quote, Earth's turning revealed the moon. It's past full and now beginning to wane. And from this, Craig, I would guess that the Feast of Holy Catherine likely occurs near the end of the new moon mm. when you can't see it. And if that's right, then my outer limit of days since the elevation ceremony is the correct one. 29 days. Very cool. Yeah. You think Wolf kept a calendar of the moon? <laughs> I think I, I think the fact that he brings up the moon at this point yeah, and that yeah, yeah, yeah. it seems to act, he must have been keeping track of how many days had passed and how many days he wanted to pass, I assume. So I think there is a hidden little clock in this story. Yeah. Cool. Dorcas sees the light in a building away off to the left, to the east. At first, Severian thinks it's a meteor and Dorcas has to convince him that it isn't. Someone is trying to strike a spark and start a fire. Severian's like, oh, come on. But then he can see, you know, the dull red glow and then a flame. It's not too far. Severian says, but with the dark and the crumbling stone ruins, it took longer to get to the fire. There's three figures crouched around it, and Severian calls out, we need your help. This woman is dying. Is there uh, anything to like for Macbeth in this story at this point? Hmm, possible? Yeah, I don't um, know. I don't know either, but it, yeah, I don't know. So the three of them, I mean, obviously there's there's a lot of old witches in, in, even in, in Greek mythology stories, right? There's uh, Perseus. So and- yeah, and they're I mean, they are usually seen right as sort of the three sisters of fate in some right. way or another, and that's that's certainly what I think he's looking at here. I mean, that's what they are in Macbeth, and mm-hmm. here they are somehow going to show him his future even though it's the past right there's that weird thing which is also his Um, future yeah yeah so yeah i i think i think there's definitely something about that so the three of them look up 
either they are looking out of a window or through a broken wall, but they are on an elevated floor. And Severian hears an old woman's voice. Who speaks? I hear a man's voice, but I see no man. Who are you? And Severian is hidden under his filaging cloak. So he throws it back and says, I'm right here. Uh, so the old woman, who is the Kamean that we've heard of since the boat ride on the Lake of Birds in the Botanic Garden, but this is the first time we've seen her. And Hildegrin is with them as well. And they also meet in the company of another woman, a woman with whom Severian has had a past before he met Dorcas, which is uh, which is J Jolenta. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I mean, I can see a lot of of parallels here between the last time they met Hildegrin and this. And the comedian says, who's dying? Not little pale hair. Big red gold. We've wine here and a fire, but no other physic. Go around. That's where the stair is. So he says, I led our animals around the corner of the building as she had indicated. The stone walls cut off the low moon and left us in blind darkness. But I stumbled on rough steps that must have been made by piling stones from fallen structures against the side of the building. After hobbling the two destriers, I carried Jalinta up, Dorcas going before us to feel the way and warn me of danger. Okay. You said, st you said stumble. I, I, I know it says stumbled and my <laughs> mind does too. And I was going to go out and grab like my, I, I literally went and... off and got my timescape, uh, a hardcover of, uh, the, uh, claw of the conciliar and it's stumbled. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. And of all the words in this book, stumbled is definitely the one that is certainly completely made up by Wolf. Uh, <laughs> and yet I think I, can completely understand what it means. It's a combination of stumbled and stamped. It's the way you walk in the dark with a lot of clutter, big boulders and your feet. And so you have to pick up your feet and bring them down solidly, but you're always mm -hmm. at a risk of tripping, right? Yep. Stumbled. Yep. Yep. From a distance, Severian thought the roof was flat, but it turned out it wasn't completely flat. It's angled and uneven. So he has to be really careful walking on it anyway. And it's shingled with clay tiles that come loose and smash on the ground. And next, there's a lot of destruction going on. As yeah, the whole place is falling yeah. apart, even as they walk through it, right? Yeah. How did this place survive so long? So uh, next we get a story that doesn't make sense the first time reader, but it is appropriate to hear now. When I was an apprentice and too young to be entrusted with any but the most elementary tasks, I was given a letter to take to the witch's tower across the old court from our own. I learned much later that there was a good reason for selecting only boys well below the age of puberty to carry the messages or proximity to the witches required. So does Severian ever explain what is so sexually insidious about the witches, whatever screwed up girlos and, and, and still works up Severian? Yeah. And it, it also, yeah, it's weird. Like there must be something beyond just the idea that they actually like sex, right? Because right, I mean, yeah. he sends him off to the the uh, house azure, and you know, he, he yeah. talks about. It. And so <laughs> yeah, he says, yeah. "I wouldn't, I wouldn't turn just anyone over to the witches." Though, yeah, <laughs> but but it definitely seems like there's some suggestion that it's it's not just a sort of moral impurity. <laughs> like there's something yeah. apparently dangerous about. Yeah, About maybe it's a type of cosmic impurity. Yeah, right? I, but, but there's it's never clarified. So far as I, I know. So, so, uh, so Severian says, 
Now, when I know the horror of our own tower inspired not only in the people of the quarter, but to an equal or greater degree in the other residents of the citadel itself, I find a flavor of quaint naivete in the recollection of my own fear. Yet to the small and unattractive boy I was, it was very real. <laughs> I don't think it's ever been made clear before that the citadel is just a portion of the larger quarter, right? Even yeah. though it's obvious, it, it, it's, it's inherently true uh, from you know, a lot of, in a lot of little hints. Yeah. I had heard terrible stories from the older apprentices. Stories he will not share. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I had seen that boys unquestionably braver than I were afraid. In that most gaunt of all the Citadel's myriad towers, strangely colored lights burned by night. The screams we heard through the ports of our dormitory came not from some underground examination room like our own, but from the highest levels. And we knew that it was the witches themselves who screamed thus, and not their clients. For in the sense we used that word, they had none. Nor were those screams the howlings of lunacy and the shrieks of agony as ours were. I had been made to wash my hands so they would not soil the envelope, and I was very conscious of their dampness and their redness as I picked my way among the puddles of freezing water that dotted the courtyard. My mind conjured up a witch who should be immensely dignified and humiliating, who would not shrink from punishing me in some particularly repulsive way for daring to carry a letter to her in red hands and would send me back with a scornful report to Master Marubius as well. I must have been very small indeed. Yeah, despite having perfect memory, Severian hadn't been measuring his own height at this age. So this isn't a memory error, I think. It's not like he, he couldn't choose to access when this event happened if he chose, I think. I think so. I had to jump to reach the knocker. The smack of the witch's deeply worn doorstep against the thin soles of my shoes remains with me still. Yes? The face that looked into mine was hardly higher than my own. I'm thinking of Linda Hunt. Should play, she should play this <laughs> role in the 1980s movie adaptation. So, yeah. Uh, look up uh, the year of living dangerously, kids. <laughs> the face was one of those outstanding of its kind among all the hundreds of thousands of faces I've seen that are at once suggestive of beauty and disease. Again, is there any hint to this in the background of the command? I, I, I don't say to the background of the witches, because obviously, you know, they're probably mostly made up of women who were given to them as infants at, by the Manichean Tower. But remember, the woman that the Calde referred to as Mother Perexia, she was buried in her house, like Barnock. The description of her when they opened the house suggests to me someone like the Kamean. Perexia means fever, which suggests, uh, you know, disease. A face of beauty suggests to me, well, the Herodules and the Hierogrammates, uh, and the giant statues at the House Absolute. Yeah. yeah. And uh, the Kamean is a time manipulator, like the Herodules, like the uh, Megatherians and the Undines. Could the leaders of the witches be some kind of lower caste among the races of the walkers and the quarters of time? Hmm. Interesting. Possible. Yeah. I mean, it is. Yeah, the disease, like what would disease mean yeah. in different contexts? And hmm, interesting. Okay. So he says, the witch to whom it belonged seemed old to me and must actually have been about 20 or a little less. But she was not tall and she carried herself in the bent back posture of extreme age. Her face was so lovely and so bloodless 
that it might have been a mask carved in ivory by some master sculptor. <laughs> uh, yeah, and it is a mask. And this is another link to me between the witches and Agilus and Agia. I, I've argued repeatedly that Agilus appearing to look like Agia because he's wearing a mask. And I will say it is my growing suspicion uh, based on my new opinions of their origin story derived from the play that they're both wearing masks. And if Agia is wearing a mask to hide his corpse face, then maybe Agia is as well. They look like twins because they're wearing the same masks. That's mm. what I say. That's my opinion, and my opinion is mine. <laughs> so, but it would also so it would be a white mask that mm. this witch was wearing, and one that looked diseased. So interesting. Yeah. Okay. Well, so, bloodless, bloodless, but also quite yeah. also says quite quite pretty. I, I bet there are many yeah. masks. So mutely, I held up my letter. Come with me, she said. Those were the words I had feared, and now that they had actually been given voice, they seemed as inevitable as the procession of the seasons. I entered a tower very different from our own. Ours was oppressively solid, the plates of metal so closely fitted that they had ages ago diffused into one another to become one mass, and the lower <laughs> floors of our tower were warm and dripping. Yeah, that does happen with plates of metal over a long period of time, so... Yeah, this is very old, very old, you know. And metal is is a solid, but it's also to some extent over time acts like a like any liquid, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. And the witch's tower, as I think it is obvious in Earth of the New Sun, is not like the Madison. It's not, I think, an ancient spaceship. No, and um he talks about it somewhere else too. Was it in the first part of Shadow where he he mentions something about it being more like an actual building. I think, yeah, I think so. Yeah, I'll have to that up. Yeah. So he says, nothing seemed solid in the witch's tower, and few things were. Much later, Master Palamon explained to me that it was far older than most other parts of the citadel, and had been built when the design of towers was still little more than the imitation of inanimate materials of human physiology, so that <laughs> skeletons of steel were used to support a fabric of flimsier substances. Yeah, yeah, see there? It seems that most new buildings in Severian's time are extruded, like from a 3D printer <laughs> yeah. or something. Yeah. And our style of building with a frame is just completely passive. Why would anyone do it that way? When you can just get your 3D extruder to, to build your buildings. Yeah, it's also just a cool moment of that sort of weird sort of historical rationalization that he goes through. He's like, oh yeah, mm -hmm. the old ones were sort of primitive because they were copying human bodies, right? With skeletons and yeah. like, it's not, yeah, there's no, not no. the normal. Well, yeah. I, well, of course. And also that is a kind of a, a new thing in our time, right? In, yeah. in the ancient times, they just put up brick walls that were mm -hmm. heavy enough to support all the weight that they needed. Yeah. Yeah. So, but well, just kind of a funny thing that it's like, you know, he just make, made that up. <laughs> but it, it sounds intelligent. It's yeah. learned. Yeah. Yeah. It's just one of those just so stories that you keep hearing yeah. in this. Yeah. Yeah. He, but yeah, that these kind of buildings that we have, they're just a weird relic that Severian feels the need to explain it to his readers. But of mm -hmm. course, you know, he does not need to explain what the modern method of architecture is, <laughs> even though that might be uh, yeah. interesting to us yeah. that he yeah. does need to. Yeah. But he skips over it. So with the passing of the centuries, that skeleton had largely corroded away until at last the structure it had once stiffened was held up only by the piecemeal repairs of past generations. <laughs> Oversized rooms were separated by walls not much thicker than draperies. No floor was level and no stair straight. Each banister and railing I touched seemed ready to come off in my hand. 
Gnostic designs in white, green, and purple had been chalked on the walls, but there was little furniture, and the air seemed colder than that outside. I, I think that the term Gnostic here is just being used as an equivalent to alchemy. Yeah, strange. Right? Yeah, yeah, just think like things he can't, or, right, yeah. can't read. Yeah, Ex exotic, esoteric. Right. And the reference to no floor being level and no stair being straight is interesting in that it appears incredibly unstable as if it relied on a stability that didn't come from the structure itself. But it's actually, I guess, because it's all of the metal parts have just melded into each other. And, and of course, it, it is being held up by other little thin walls that they, they use just to, to hold it in place. Yeah. Also, it does seem like just loose wood, right? Like yeah. things are, are ready to come off. You know, it's just because it's, yeah, it's not nailed in well anymore. And, you know, if he hasn't really seen that kind of building in a long time, then, yeah, I can totally get how, you know, an old loose banister could feel Exactly yeah. like you described. But it also suggests a, a complete disinterestedness among the witchers for yep. architectural maintenance. Yep. As, you know, as if any physical structure is equally inconvenient. Yeah. And no furniture and then just, just like drawings, random drawings on the walls. Yeah. Yeah, there's a sense of just sort of it follows something alien, some kind yeah. of Yeah. Yeah. It thing. has this chaotic feeling that we expect yeah. among witches of legend. And also I think the colors that he chooses, white, green, and purple, like I'm so used to green and blue in some ways, or sort of common pairings like red and white or red and black or, or things, but white, green, and purple is not, you know, apart from, I think nowadays, actual Halloween stuff, that's where you might see green and purple together, but otherwise you don't really, it's not a color oh, yeah. combination. I don't mm -hmm. necessarily think is pretty common. So. Except for football teams or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. but it's, but I think all of that, and, you know, there's probably somebody out there who's mad that we're just passing over the word Gnostic so, yeah. so quickly. But, but otherwise, well, but I just, do. Don't, it's just Gnostic, I, they're, they're Gnostic symbols. I don't know what, what they look like. Yeah. Um, yeah. And just, you know, to just say they'd been chalked, but there were, but then to pass over that and be like, but there was a little furniture, you know, but there's nothing right. else. It's, it's a weird place to put it. And so it feels more like a, it, it's a word that in that context suggests things that, you know, the point is not to explain them. You know, right. To, yeah. To yeah. Death. Death. And um, this chaotic uh, architecture that they live in always reminds me a bit of Merlin in The Sword in the Stone, Disney's mm -hmm. uh, Sword in the Stone. He, no matter what he lives in, it seems like it's about to fall apart. Yeah. 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 So after climbing several stairs and a ladder lashed together from the unpeeled saplings of some fragrant tree, I was ushered into the presence of an old woman who sat in the only chair I had yet seen, staring through a glass tabletop at what appeared to be an artificial landscape inhabited by hairless, crippled animals. <laughs> is this a viewing screen or a crystal ball? Or is she looking at her experimental mole rat colony? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, who knows, like a glass tabletop? Like, is yeah. it just a is it just a monitor on its back or something? Right, exactly, like yeah. yeah. So, but, which, you don't know. I gave her my letter and was led away. But for a moment, she had glanced at me and her face, like the face of the young old woman who had brought me to her, has of course remained graven in my mind. So, Severian explains that the reason he's telling this old story now is that the woman who were around this fire were the same women, Greg. Yep. Both the old woman here and the young woman. And he's already noted the analogy of a mask. So I think it's reasonable to say that 
you know, witchers wear masks and a mask that is as mobile as if it were a human face, but it's still in fact a mask. Yeah. And I think that's if, even if Agilus, like he even says when he sees that Agilus is wearing a mask, it takes him kind of a minute to realize it. So I think when he's talking about masks, he's not talking about immovable masks. Right. These are some kind of technological masks or something. Yeah, exactly. So if, if it is a mask. And I'll say one other possibility, of course, we have to mention is that it really is the same women who haven't aged. And so there's more time, time, timey yeah, like maybe on. it could yeah. be they could all be this as he suggests they could yeah. all be the same women but that would suggest what are they doing with all those women that the mansion is you know all those baby girls yeah. that the mansion's handing over to yep. Them. yep yep and again i'm not really sure and i i gotta say since we're in the the one chapter where we get the most information about the witches i feel especially after the little piece he just gives i feel like he intentionally wants the witches to remain vague mm -hmm. and i feel like we're told a lot about the cumaean but she may not be representative of all of the witches i'm just not sure like the That's way that he yeah. writes this is somehow to me intending for the witches to stay weird and mysterious yeah. and not necessarily to give us clues to figure out what they are. And that's, that's again, gut feeling about this stuff, but just the way he talks about the details and, you know, frankly, that kind of clicked with that word Gnostic for me when I was like, Oh, I think maybe the witches, you know, just, it really is something that's supposed to be suggestive of a lot of things, but it's not, it may not be a, a puzzle that's intended. To be yeah. Something. Yeah. It's figuring out their, their motives at anything. Yeah. It may not yeah. be something that now, the worked out. Humayun, I think is something else, but we'll, we'll get to that. Like, I don't think that she is identical with the witches, even if she is oh, that's with them or part of them. That's do you think this, see, now we've encountered the Kumayan here. But supposedly the Autark has to go to the the Garden of Endless Sleep. Yep, that's to the meet with her, and Hildren says that he does that so he doesn't have to go to the other side of the planet. Well, this is hardly on the other side of the planet. This is not all that far from the yeah. Uh, yeah. So what does it yeah. mean? Yeah. So yeah, and I think I also think that when he describes Marin here. She seems much more human than the Kumeyan does to me. Like she yeah, seems more like a person who maybe does stuff. And who knows? Maybe the witches are all just like the servants of the Kumeyan or something. I don't know. But I do get the sense that the human, the Kumeyan the is not human, but the witches mostly are human. And I think that what sounds that, believable. What that if means? assuming that there are more than one one uh, assistant in sure. the entire group. Yeah. yeah, exactly, exactly. So, but but assuming that they really do send all the little girls over there, and that um, that the witches really are a whole group, and uh, you know, they even the the thing where uh, Gerlo says, like, have you ever you know dallied with the witches or whatever? There's this <laughs> suggestion that you know there are a whole lot of them um and we just never quite told what all they do right but, exactly. yeah so anyway but we'll we'll get to all that because i think that a lot of people who talk about the witches and or the cumaean just kind of assume that they either are the same thing or aren't the same thing but i think it's it's something we gotta figure out yeah and again you know this event in the next two chapters is going to in severian's mind connect the witches to necromancy yep and that they practice necromancy. And it's worthwhile, I think, to question how far that connection goes. You know, who knows? Who knows what becomes of the infant girls that the yep. magician gives to the witches? It's uh, yes, like you said, it, it, the whole thing is weird and vague. And I think that's the way Wolf wanted it. But Severian supposes something that I don't think is true. But he speculates. 
as Autark, remember, he's writing as Autark, which suggests that the witches are as much a mystery to the entire line of Autarks as they were to young Severian, the torturer's apprentice, and as they are to us. But anyway, he goes on to suppose perhaps there are but two witches in the world who are born into it again and again. And I, you know, I doubt this is entirely true, or at least you know, not true for the reason that Severian supposes, that their faces look the same. But given their power over time travel and apparently mirror technology, I don't know, it might be true in some way. Yeah. Or maybe it's like the Sith. There's always one and there's an apprentice. <laughs> yeah. and it's just the archetype that there's always only two at any one. Let's not go over George Lucas's mistakes. So <laughs> in the plotting of Star Wars. <laughs> The two witches are the Kamean, the old one, and Marin, the young one, just two. But remember. Which, by was, the way, her name is somewhat close to Merlin. Just got to yes, point that out. Yeah, gotta yes, yes, yes. But remember that when Severian first approached the fire, he saw three figures. The third was Hildegrin, yep. whose presence here is something of a mystery, even when this volume ends. Hildegren, and remember that is not his real name, is one of the it's one of the aliases that he uses. Hildegren is hiding, and why? I, I suppose it is you know his first response to any situation. He's like a squirrel. Assume a predator and consider later. Yeah, and it's also interesting to remember the title of the chapter is the Badger again. Mm -hmm. Badger is Hildegren. So even though we're getting all this talk about the witches and they're kind of the focus of it, even when he starts talking to Hildegren again. Yeah, the title of the chapter is Badger again. So right. a repetition of an alias for something else. Yeah, which is exactly. And and we should talk about Marin, but frankly, much of what we know about her extends beyond this book and even or beyond Earth of the New Sun, all the way to the end of the Long Sun, the Short Sun supernovel. So uh, let's pick this up before we close so that it'll be easier for people to drop out <laughs> of this discussion if they want to. So for the people who who get very picky about the spoilers and like, are you spoiling all of Wolf or yeah. just New Sun or just letting good Earth? We're trying to not. be nice. We're trying to play nice with the long sun and short sun. But uh, once again, you know, that's not easily done. So Marin asks, you know, what's wrong with Jolinta? But the truth is that beyond the bleeding, they don't really know. But they do suspect Talos could help her. So they don't think it's only that. Anyway, they try to explain. But before they finish, the Kumeyan puts Jalinta's head in her lap and pours wine into her from a clay bottle. Normally, we ought to always assume that when whatever Severian thinks is wine is not wine and what he thinks is a clay bottle is not clay. But I think it really is that here because the Kumeyan says it would harm her if it were strong enough to harm. But this is three parts pure water. She tells them that Jalinta would surely have died if they had not come upon the witches tonight. And in fact, we know Jalinta is not going to make it anyway. Yeah. And she says, quote, you were fortunate to come upon us since you want to save her life. But whether she is also fortunate, I cannot say. She, I think she kind of sees, she is more empathetic really than Severian <laughs> or Dorcas. She actually sees, you know, she may not want to be saved. Because uh, she, she knows that it means going back to what she was before or less. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So there's definitely intended to be a little bit of some kind of super insight offered 
to mm -hmm. Marin and the witches here. So. Like she's seen this kind of thing before. Yeah. And so Severian asks who the third person he saw and where they'd gone, and the witches chose to lie. She stares at Severian, we're talking about Marin, and then looks down at Jalenta, and Marin says, there were only two of us. You saw three? Why lie, Craig? What are they up to? Why hide that they were talking to another client? Was the third person Hildegrin saw Hildegrin or a third witchy entity when the witches, you know, do their thing? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's a question. Uh, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. So Severian asserts affirmatively that there were three, and Marin deflects by explaining that the old lady is, quote, the Kamean. Uh, Severian had heard the title again at the Botanic Gardens, and he knows that he's heard the title before uh, by, quote, for a moment I could not remember where, and the younger woman's face, immobile as an oreads in a picture, gave me no clue. Uh, an oread is a, a mountain nymph, and they were associated with the virgin huntress Artemis, who, like each of the Olympians, is a figure in the constellation Orion, the hunter. But anyway, Severian is familiar with mountain nymphs in pictures, and Marin's face is immobile and pretty, like a face in a painting, a mask. Dorcas knows the name because Dorcas knows everything. She says, the Kamean, the Cirrus, and then asks about Marin, who explains that she is the Kamean's acolyte. An acolyte is Greek for assistant. It's most commonly applied to an assistant in a religious ceremony. Yeah. So one thing we should point out, yep, Severian does say for a moment I couldn't remember, right? Which mm -hmm. is important because it is kind of like a big punctuation that he said before he doesn't have, you know, necessarily magic perfect recall of everything. But for him to suggest for even just for a moment, like to just call attention to the fact that he couldn't remember something to me that just calls out, yeah, there's something strange going on here, right? Yeah, like it, yeah, I agree. Some, I something agree. doesn't line up with memories and identification and sort of who is who or what is what. My guess is that it's supposed to, it's something about the sort of weird timey-wimeyness of the Cumaean, like just how we find out, you know, what she really is is somehow not human or something like that. Yeah, I feel like um, she's bending time yeah. The, yeah. the time portion of space time around yeah. her or something yeah and that fits back too with like the when he saw her at the witches you know when he said too he there was that little moment where he couldn't remember exactly how tall he was or something mm -hmm. you know it's, yeah. it's very subtle but if you're looking for and, and if you're if you're really pushing on points where severian deliberately sort of calls attention to his memory not working right Right. That's pretty interesting. And I do, I do think it's supposed to suggest something about, yeah, it's like, even if she just makes timelines shaky or something <laughs> for a minute, I don't know, but I think but, it's very credible. I, yeah. I obviously I think it's because I think that has a lot to do with a lot of Severian's failures of memory. Yeah. So yeah. if it falls in line with my own theories, so I, <laughs> I will allow it. <laughs> so. But Mary continues to argue that there were only two of them around the fire. So she says, it is significant possibly that you who are three saw three of us at the fire, while we who are two at first saw but two of you. She looked to the Cumaean as if for confirmation, and then as if she had received it back to us, though I saw no glance pass between them. <laughs> Since Marin has drawn a connection between the three seeing two on either side, 
let's consider the possible parallels. Dorcas, when traveling with Baldanders, Talos, and Jalenta, felt as if she were actually alone, as if the three of them were not really there as persons at all. And we considered how this might be because those three, Baldanders, Talos, Jalenta, were all contrivances, artifacts of humanity, rather than fully human or human at all. Now, when they approach, there's something of that as well. The witches see only Severian and Dorcas, as if Jalinta is not there at all. And Marin suggests there's a parody in that they saw three people when actually, she continues to insist, there were only two witches. I, I don't know where we're going to end up here. But Craig, do you remember our discussion postulating the unlikely possibility that Hildegrin could be a robot, <laughs> something like Jonas, maybe? Yep. Yep. Yeah. So Severian continues to insist that despite what Marin says, he saw a third person, a larger person. That is, of course, definitely Hildegrin. And Marin says, well... And she says, this is a strange evening, and there are those who ride the night air who sometimes choose to borrow a human seeming. The question is why such a power would wish to show itself to you. <laughs> so she's like, yeah, it's yeah, she's just met these people and she's like pulling up legends and telling them they're lying. Yeah. And the other thing too, that she's, that I think her point suggests is that you always see through your own filters. You always see yourself mm -hmm. in everything else. Right. Oh, yeah, so yeah, like a mirror. That, yeah. 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 That you, when that you always project what you want to see, that's kind of to me, like if it's a fable that there are two of you, so, or there are three of you. So you saw three and there are two of us. So we'd see two. That's that to me seems kind of like the fable that, that we only see mm -hmm. what we are really. So could be, um, it, that's also sort of the total opposite of what they're going to eventually show Severian which is wild and he's going to see through things and like see the Cuman, what she really is and see through time. Um, so I don't think she means that really. I, so I you think, think we're, that she, that there is nothing more to this than that she's lying. Um, I'm not sure about that, but I don't think what she gives there. I think she's very, I, the fact too that she mentions this this other thing that's definitely like a fairy tale or something. I think here she's just intentionally being cagey and she's just mm -hmm. trying to not play with them, but maybe set them off guard or to just, you know, m not have to be the one to settle on anything. Like she doesn't right. want to give away anything about who she is or what they are. Well, look, uh, you're probably right because I, I can't settle on anything alternate story of what Hildegrin actually is. But there is that little bit about that those who ride the night air who choose to borrow a human seeing, mm -hmm. even if Hildegrin isn't a robot. And, and and I think he probably isn't. Doesn't mean he's necessarily human either. Mm -hmm. He he's he's a character with a, a long past. Yeah. Uh, a, a really interesting past. Yeah. When he himself is it considers to be interesting. And who knows what his story is. Yeah. And I still love the idea that, you know, he's just like super heavy, right? Like he's, whether he's a robot or not, <laughs> he's, somehow... he's, been, he's been eating some of those little lead bullets that they feed to the dead. So. Right. Yeah. But it's <laughs> when he, when he brings up about how he sinks in the, in the yeah. lake of birds, it's just such a cool moment because it could be, yeah, it could be that he's a robot. It could also be that he's, he is just really big, but it's just weird enough that it mm -hmm. leads you to speculate. Like it's just so right. perfectly a chosen detail. It's not, you know, it's not totally surreal. It's just, 
weird. <laughs> yeah, or he might not be a robot. Maybe he's something. Who knows? Maybe yeah. he's something else. Yeah. Maybe yeah. he isn't a huge, you know, a borrowing a human seeming. Yeah. Um, yeah. But still, I mean, so the comedian is also borrowing a human seeming. Yeah. And, and that's maybe that's the what her reference is yeah. referring to. And it it could be too that what they're doing is just really being cagey just for secrecy's sake, right? Like they just yeah. really don't want anybody else to know what they're doing here. And so that's why she's being all weird. You know, right. it could yeah. be as simple as that. Yeah, yeah. But we just don't know because yeah, she seems to lie. <laughs> um, yeah. Unless yeah. unless we really did switch you know, dimensions or times or something. Yeah. Well, I mean, but what does it matter? I mean, because honestly too, remember too, he does have to walk a path to get up here, right? He's got to walk a certain way. He takes some time to sort of talk about how they walk around. Oh, wow. Exactly. Yeah. So that's the only other thing I'm thinking is that Wolf does take time to point out how Severian has to walk a certain path to get up here Mm. and it's dark and confusing and he stumbles and all that kind of stuff. So uh, you know, that's that's been the sort of big telltale sign before of, of time travel good. or weird things. It yeah. could well be happening again. It's a nice catch. I like yeah. that. So uh, she seems so casual and forthright that Severian would have been inclined to believe her. But Dorcas is not having it because she says that the third person could have crossed across the roof and is hiding on the farther side of the ridge. It's not clear to me what ridge, you know, she's talking about. It's very hard to draw a map of this scene. I yeah, think. I didn't know if she meant like a ridge of a house, like a yeah. gabled roof or something. I don't, right, know. Right. I don't know. So, okay, let's let's accept that Marion is lying and there's nothing more to it than that. So, you know, you still have to ask, why did she lie? Yeah. Uh, would it be in the witch's interest to hide the fact? You know, we're not only hiding that their supplicant was Hilderin, but that they had another person, another supplicant at all. Yep. You know, certainly the fact that she lies about it so incessantly, to me, it just feels like she means something mm-hmm. by it. Yeah. 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 I mean, people in wolf stories are weird. Yeah. <laughs> yeah well, they are witches. They, so. they, there's got to be a point, too. Yeah. Yeah. The Kamean just completely redirects the conversation toward Jolenta. She's still staring at her, and she says, she may live, though she does not wish it. And Severian, well, you know, it's lucky you had so much wine. And she says, yeah, good for you. Maybe her too. <laughs> so again, we have this assertion that, look, you too may want to save her life. But someone who has done so much of themselves or allowed so much to be done to themselves is not going to be grateful for you for saving their lives by allowing it to you know, essentially survive only as a different person. Right? Yeah. The Kameyan is, I think, correctly assessing Chalenta. Mm-hmm. Once skinny, starving waitress, unvalued by anybody. And, and I think uh, she's assessing her correctly. Yeah. And I think to do that requires more kind of seeing than just, you know. Yeah. He, she may see all kinds of alternate yeah. versions. We may see one where Chalenta uh, actually lives, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because all she knows is that this is a a very sick and dying person and who knows mm-hmm. if she can see really i mean they talk about how they can see all the stuff that's been done to her and whatnot but she's only glanced at her so far so. right and there's a well there is a kind of we'll, we'll get to it but there is kind of a sense that she's living in multiple timelines mm-hmm. right? yeah yeah so she definitely seems like we we don't know that yet and it's sort of i think at the very beginning maybe you just think oh she's very intuitive but uh, right. I, don't know, I think it's more than that 
Severian says that in saying this, the Comanian did not you know, rise to the bait, which is to say that she didn't explain why she had so much wine, which I think we are expected to ask the same. And the question, you know, whether the wine is wine, right? It's the Kamean who speaks most matter-of-factly. It's Marin who casts everything in the most spooky way. And at this point, Marin pokes at the fire with a stick and interposes, totally not necessary, I think. She says, there is no death. <laughs> yeah, and by the way, this is just a cool reversal. Like, to point that out, it's a cool reversal of the sort of, you know, mysterious old seer lady, right? Right, right, like, right. Here, she's not riddling. She's just saying straight up it's the the one who doesn't seem to have the insight necessarily that's doing all the riddling yeah yeah that's very just laughs and says well if that were true i'd be out of a job <laughs> so, and Baron doubles down she says those of your trade are mistaken mm -hmm. and jalenta finally starts to wake up a little and says doctor the the discussion of there is no death i guess leads her to call out talos it's if this is the sort of thing that she would hear Talos say. Mm, I like that. That's kind of cool. Yeah. Marin assumes she's asking for a real medical doctor. You don't need a physician now. Someone better is here. But the Kamean seems to have the power to see into Jalinta's intention in her speech. And she says, she seeks her lover. But of course, Talos is unlikely to have such actual sexual intercourse with Jalinta. But as Severian has foreshadowed, that is the way she actually thinks of him, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Marin says, wait, this guy isn't her lover? <laughs> well, that makes sense. I, I thought he seemed too common for her. <laughs> this puts a little insult in there. And the, uh, the comedian says, he's only a torturer. She seeks worse. <laughs> oh. Yep. Marin says that what they have walked into is actually a kind of dangerous situation, which is interesting. This night is definitely going to get dangerous. Jalinta is going to die this night. Maybe she died from all the other things that are going on, or maybe it was part of the implosion of Severian and his you know, other self. So Marin suggests that the three of them move to the other side of the Stone Town ruins. So Severian gets argumentative and gets everything off track. Maybe he's just annoyed at having to move Jalinta since she's so weak. He says, dangerous? You just said even death isn't something to be feared. But, you know, he's getting up to go anyway. Yeah, and this part didn't really make sense to me. Like, I didn't quite, I, and I still don't quite, I, I don't get why they have to move. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just, I, yeah, I mean. Yeah, or move Jalinta anyway. Yeah. yeah, they could leave her. She's she's kind of put a she, they they stop paying attention to her for in order to do their other things, yeah. which suggests that they don't think that she's supposed to die imminently. Yeah, right. It just it, that gets a little confusing to me. Like, I mean, I can, I yeah, I can follow, it, but it just it starts to get like very picky about certain things, and yeah, it so it felt more like, I yeah, I don't know, I don't know. For some reason, that this whole little passage part here where they're about moving her and moving away and dangerous for her, but she's mm -hmm. going to die anyway. Just, yeah, it, I had, I, I still kind of have trouble. I mean, I mean, together. I mean, if we're going to assume that she's still trying to hide Hildegrin, maybe they just want to move them farther maybe away from that, where Hildegrin is hiding. Yeah. Yeah. But Hildegrin's going to give the whole thing away. Why does he, he doesn't care. He, in fact, he needs Severian to help him 
haul Apu Chapunchow back to yeah. Vodalus, right? Yeah, yeah. So this just this whole part from here on out, the the sort of immediate motivation for what's happening seems dreamlike to me. Yeah, like because mm-hmm. there, it's like we state this one reason, but it's not. It, you know, it it could be true, but it seems either trivial or something else. Yeah. So I don't know. It's like so uh, the focus, like I. I get the sense that that's what Wolf was actually going for in this and the last chapter, like that you just feel like even the basic surface of what's happening as far as even like why characters are standing where they are is confusing and and meant to be confusing. And I mean like dreamlike, like when you're in one of those dreams where just nothing super rational seems to be happening and like just where everything is off somehow. Yeah. That's what it feels like is going on. So I, that's me taking my confusion and making it important. (laughs) Just like, (laughs) just like at the beginning of this volume, Wolf seems to be intent on throwing us off of exactly how long it's been since the end of shadow of the torture. Yeah. Yeah. Here, maybe he is deliberately trying to throw us off kilter about what is going on at any given moment yeah but the the command here she gets she gets pedantic she she finally looks up from jolinta remember jolinta's head is is still on her lap and she says that marin is right in saying death is nothing even though really she doesn't understand why she says marin quote only speaks by rote like a starling in a cage she says death is nothing and for that reason you must fear it what is more to be feared than nothing? <laughs> so other than the spooky woo-woo of it, uh, do you have any insight into that statement? Um, it reminds me of an old fable that Chaucer tells a version of it. And um, there's a, a few of them where like three beggars or three three thieves have to to do something and, and you confuse death with nothing and it, mm-hmm. it leads to your to your your own death or something like that. It yeah. sounds kind of like that, that little old legend, but, but it doesn't really, that doesn't really pay off to me very much. So, yeah, but no, it's, I mean, it is a cool, it's one of those, you know, good moments where death is nothing, which would seem to make it insignificant, but that's also the most insignificant thing is the most significant thing to be afraid of. And so, yeah, it's yeah. all paradoxy and weird. Yeah. But, yeah. but the moment, the thing about Marin speaking only by rote, um, especially like a starling in a cage, that's a, that's a weird thing to say. Like, it's like, she doesn't really get it. And she knows what she's been taught. Yeah. I mean, she's yeah, very she, didn't because yeah. she's constantly repeating what she's yeah. learned. Which makes her seem like a, a an apprentice in, in yeah. some way. Yeah, so, that's true. Well, that's believable. Um, so yeah, but it's a, but it's a weird. She knows, she knows what to say. What is the facts, but she doesn't know the meaning behind the facts. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yep. But yeah, for exactly what it's going to mean for what eventually is happening here, I'm, uh, we'll have to we'll have to yeah. go further. Well, you know, yeah. Well, I mean, I took a deep dive on the philosophical question of nothingness, but honestly, I, you know, I can't derive any meaning. This might reflect on Wolf's own contempt for nihilism. Wolf's fourth story sale was, and the Green Wall said, and it was to Michael Moorcock's New Worlds magazine. And it was, per Jack Dan in our interview with him, one of the epicenters of the New Wave movement, you know, the British epicenter. But Wolf said, uh, regarding the sale of that story, he says, for reasons that I have never understood, this appeared in New Worlds, a radical and arty, almost an underground SF magazine that Michael Moorcock was editing in London. 
I subscribed and found it, like other such magazines, hugely confident of what it hated and was very willing to support. It may very well be that Moorcock accepted the Green Wall said simply as a personal favor, the instinct of nihilists being infinitely superior to their opinions. <laughs> so, Whether or not that's fair to Moorcock, I, yeah. I don't know. I'm um, just saying, well, yeah, I'm just saying that's the wolf's own perspective. On, yeah, on yeah. So, I don't know. Maybe it has something to do with nihilism. Yeah. And I mean, it's the kind of thing where you, you may understand yourself really well, but you usually understand your enemies least, which is probably, oh, probably what, what is going on there too. Just like how, <laughs> yeah. Cause it, like if you read Moorcock's, well, for, you read his fiction, I mean, you know, epic battles between order and, right. and chaos that can never be, you know, completed. I mean, there, there's, that's, it's not nihilism, but it's not what Wolf would see as meaning. So, right, yeah. yeah. But so yeah, so what is to be more feared than nothing and then death being nothing? There is that, there's something in the sense there of, you know, like, you know, Christ being the the one who conquered death, you know, like mm -hmm. he, he came over and, and, you know, finally is what redeems all of experience and all of life and everything else. Yeah. And, and Oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, grave, yeah. where is thy victory? Yeah, 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 exactly. And so there's something to that kind of... Uh, there's a, well, there's two different ways of saying death is nothing. There's mm -hmm. something the way uh, Marin says it, which is death is, is nothing uh, consequential, or the way that the Kamehameha seems to say where that death is the true end, right? Yep. And so there are ways to see it too, is in if New Sun is all about evolution and becoming more things, then the whole point is turning death into change rather than right. and, and death into redemption. Right. Like growth, redemption some way or another, rather than it just being a simple end in which there's no more after that. So, yeah, I mean, I think there's there's echoes of all that stuff um, um, in there where so that when Camille does say, yeah, you know, death is nothing and you should fear nothing. It's because there's there's a better way to understand death mm. than just as an end. Um, yeah. So but but that all gets very metaphysical very fast. And it's like, what does that have to do exactly with Jolenta? Because she's also the one here who just said, maybe she doesn't want to keep living. Maybe living <laughs> for her would be bad. So the command is the one who just said, what you should fear nothing more than nothing, which is death. But she also just said, maybe we should let her die. So it's, it's a complicated, there's lots of stuff going yeah. on here. Yeah. So anyway, the, her claim that nothing is to be feared more than nothing. Severian just laughs and said, well, can't argue with someone as wise as you. Uh, yeah. That's his sarcasm coming. He's he's becoming more and more sarcastic. He's becoming more and more sarcastic as this uh, book continues. Anyway, so he says, "Look, you're you're nice and helpful. So since you want us to, we'll just go." And he picks up Jolenta uh, from the command's lap, but the command responds that she does not wish for them to go. Yeah, she says, I do not wish it. My acolyte still believes the universe hers to command, a board where she can move counters to form whatever patterns suit her. The Magi see fit to number me among themselves when they write their short roll, and I should lose my place on it if I do not know that people like ourselves are only little fish who must swim with unseen tides if we are not to exhaust ourselves without finding sustenance. Now, <laughs> little fish. Yep, yep. <laughs> now you must wrap this poor creature in your cloak and lay her by my fire. When this place passes out of the shadow of Earth, I will look to her wound again. Out of the shadow of Earth—that means after you know the sun comes up. 
So let's see, this command seems to recognize that it is not pure chance that Severian is here, that uh, at their fire, he, he's significant, even though he does, she does not truly understand why. If she had, I think she never would have summoned Abu Puncha with Severian right there. And at the end of Citadel of the Autark, Severian is reflecting on what he remembered of the first Severian. He says, I know now the identity of the man called the Head of Day and why Hildegrand, who was too near, perished when we met and why the witches fled. And, and now the identity of Abu Punchao has been explained. And why Hildegrand perished because of Severian's connection or nearness to him, it, that's clear. However, Craig, why the witches fled that's a continuing mystery for me. Mm. Well, I think just like in the context of that quote from Citadel, like if you kind of put all those together, it's like, you know, I blew up when I was too close to my, you know, <laughs> when I was too close to my other guy and Hildegrin got caught in it because he was grabbing on. And the witches ran away because they knew if they were too close, they'd get blown up too. You know, th that may be, oh, that's kind of like, how maybe, I read that. Like well, maybe that's, literally, maybe you're right. Maybe they ran away before the whole thing happened. They just yeah. said, oh, Holy! Uh, let's yeah, like get they out of here. like they saw it, you know, or the Kumean could see enough at the, like at that point she could see enough to be like, oh crap, same dude, different times, whatever, blah blah, right. you know, and and ran away. Um, I think that's kind of what he's suggesting there, but I do like the fact that the Kumean at this point, yeah, I don't think she knows. Like, I think no, that, no, she couldn't, she couldn't yeah. because she because Hildegrin's plan is to get them to help him haul Apopuncho back to Vodalus. Yeah. So this is a weird thing about the Kumean then. Like she's called a seeress. She's someone who supposedly can, you know, see through time. She gets this sort of grasp of what's going on with Jalenta. But something about Severian, she can't see through. She can't really get the whole story, right? Mm -hmm. That's interesting to me. And I'm not sure why. But I think some of it might have to do, I mean, she talks about here how, you know, we have to swim along with these bigger tides and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, but Severian really is going to be someone who is at least, I think, supposed to be kind of more like someone who treats the universe as a board where he can move things. He's kind of mm -hmm. like the linchpin around which the evolution yeah, he, he's of humanity, one of those powers yeah. yeah he's he's supposed to be one of them so maybe there's something about him that because he's so central to what's going on that she can't see him um which makes her a weird seer right like she yeah. can see things for the little fish but she can't see things. well she seems to recognize that there's something going on with Severian, right mm -hmm. she says you know we're little fish but i can see she sees something big going on behind Severian. she doesn't realize it's something directly connected to Severian himself right. but it puts her in a weird place because so often every other time in the book they talk about people who can kind of pull the strings or see the background or every kind of rumor that they throw around about um an earring. But when they talk about him, it's like he knows everything. He knows the past. He knows the future. He knows what's going on. But then he's got to come and talk to, and the Autark has to come and talk to the Kumean. But she doesn't seem to have the same sort of omniscience that it seems like they suggest some of these other characters do. So um, she's a bit of a mystery here for being able to move through these different timelines and whatnot, but not necessarily to really see Severian like she's it's it's odd to me that 
you know, the Undine talks about how they were following Severian and the Megatherians know Severian's important. And, you know, Inira is setting things up for Severian and the, and Severian's being manipulated to show up at the right places at the right times. But then there's this Kumeyan who doesn't have that kind of insight. Um, Mm -hmm. And I don't, quite know what to make of that or if that's huh. right or if she's just pretending not to know that. no no i think she doesn't know i don't think see how she could but i think she does seem to recognize she doesn't want severian to leave she knows that there's something about severian that is portentous mm-hmm. right there as if he's just a, we're all just little fish but she seems to sense the hand of a big fish nearby mm-hmm but whatever powers allowed the Kamehian to guess correctly that Jalinta was calling, you know, for her lover, you know, rather than mere, mere physician, that same power is allowing her to perceive Severian, you know, is someone that matters, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. As, so she's going to help him if he can. And Severian has an intuition like that of his own. He's thinking she seems to be an ally, a helper. But at the same time, there's something in this moment that reminds him of his conversation with the Undyne. Remember that the Undyne also wanted to have Severian as a friend for her own dubious purposes. So like the Undyne, Severian is hesitantly considering what her help will cost him. And Severian is looking at her face and remember that not everyone reads this passage after reading it for 25 years, Craig. So we get some foreshadowing about the Herodules and the nature of the Kamehian. Severian says, And as I studied her face, I had come to doubt that she was an old woman at all, and to recall only too clearly the hideous faces of the Cacogens who had removed their masks when Baldanders had rushed among them. And again, she's going to reveal that she is wearing a mask, and Severian knows that the Cacogens were wearing masks, and we'll eventually learn that someone who wears one mask might wear another. Uh, so foreshadowing. Mm-hmm. Yep. So that raises the question. So is the Kimean also a Hyradul or a Yasadi or something like that? Yeah, well, that's a good question. The so only it, actual named Kakajins we've seen, well, I guess, I don't know if they've been named yet, but the only ones who get names are going to be Hyradules. Right. Be... Well, I mean, the Hyradules, though, they do, they seem to understand about Severian, mm-hmm. right? I know. They've... I know. That's so weird. how come how come how come the Kamehian who probably deals with you know some 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 Kamehian must deal with uh, some Autark Severian right how come mm-hmm. she doesn't recognize him anyway it could be all kind of type she might be having the same memory problems that Severian has you may be right about that I like that but in chapter fifty of Earthly New Sun he, Severian is talking to the BFO. Hierodules, and mm-hmm. he says, uh, he says, he saw, firstly, he's talking about how surprised he was that Apupunchao was himself, and he didn't realize that he didn't understand it at the time. And uh, and Barbatus says, well, you know, neither did we. We didn't write, we didn't know who he was either uh, when you told us about it. But now everyone realizes, no, no, it was it was Severian. That's which is why they're so surprised when he they they thought that that was their last time to see Severian. In fact. They had one more time to see him. Mm, yeah. But anyway, he says he says that at that point that Father Aniri had told him that the Kamehian is a Harajul. Oh, yeah. Okay, so funeral bronze is so... Oh, it's with that length thing. The funeral bronze is so like me, so much like the way I look now. Then there was Apupunchao. When he appeared, the Kamehian, she was a Harajul like you, Father Aniri, told me. 
and Fem Familius and Barbados nodded. When Apu Punchau appeared, he was me. I knew it, but I didn't understand. Neither did we. When you told us about it, I think I may now. Okay, so Kimean is a Hyrule, so she is a BFO kind of creature. Kind of, but it suggests that maybe they're, you know, that they, they don't all, it's, it's not a, a single society. There could be there could be other hierarchies, uh, you know, with slightly competing interests. Right, it could be. But the interesting thing then is the hieroduels are there to primarily support the humans and the actual hieros, and and like they're they're some kind of machinery in one way or another, or or helper in one way, right? They're not like the actual beings themselves is what i mean well it's i mean like, yeah they could be machine well like yeah Asapega machines or whatever is a, is a machine right, right right but i mean more like they're because he's he even said isn't there something somewhere that says they only yeah, live they're, like they're holding slaves older. yeah they're yeah. um so they're which just robots right but they could be could have be. been biologically engineered right but what that right. means then is that the cumayan is there to assist the hieros like she herself is not some i don't know she she's not a zadkiel she's something that would somehow help get to Zadkiel or or help serve Zadkiel or something. So but is but is Zadkiel, for instance, well, I guess what I'm I'm kind of getting at is maybe there could be other hierogrammet <laughs> I don't know. Hierogrammets that are not operating on the for this with the same goal. Just like there are people. Mm -hmm. I suppose so. I, it, it's hard to know. I mean, we never, we're never flat out told, but just the fact that BFO sort of specifically say that their job is to help push humanity along and get yeah. them ready. But doesn't the Kamean, isn't the fact that the Kamean ran, Severian says, now I know why they ran. She's, she's figured it out, right? That 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 Punchao is is Severian, even though oh oh yeah, I think so yeah because that even though Barbados and uh, and company hadn't figured it out right no even she, when Severian told him about it yeah so she saw that they were the same thing and and knew knew something was going to pop and explode or whatever yeah. um and so she had to go off so okay well that's that's at least puts her in a kind of category and and has her next yeah. to something else instead of just you know weird witchy snake lady or something <laughs> like that. So interesting. Okay. At least what that does is it places her in the sort of mythology that we know, right? It's not like right, she's right. some totally other thing. So, okay. So that's good. That's very good. Okay. I still don't know exactly what to do with her because we're like BFO no. had this sort of <laughs> clear, clear goal in mind and this, this sort of pretty clear role to play. But, but for, for like Operation Ares and An Evil Guest, you know, that's, you have all of these different agencies in the government, and they're all, you know, uh, uh, working on, on opposing interests. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I suppose mm -hmm. it's possible, especially since this is a, a, Wolf, a Gene Wolfe novel, that that's kind of the way he sees the, uh, the hierogrammets. And the and the hierarchies that are working under them, I suppose it could be, and it does kind of fit. It's just that so much of New Sun suggests, at least in the way it's set up, it just keeps suggesting that there is a larger conspiracy behind what's going on. Conspiracy in a good sense, even. I mean, like like, like the fact that 
there's always the idea that, you know, the increate is ultimately running everything, even if it's through all these intermediaries of, you know, the Hyros trying to help humanity evolve. And they look kind of like angels, so they're not literal angels, but they serve a kind of purpose like angels helping, helping you become a better version of yourself or something like that. Like there's always that, that very clear hierarchy at least, even if, even if when you look down in the details, you find out that things aren't always quite so perfect, you know, it's, there's still that hierarchy of like higher levels of spirituality or angels or something like that. Even if it turns out that they're just aliens, they're still mm -hmm. higher. Like the whole, the whole eagle. Yes. Well, yes, they are higher, but, but is it any less true for, for humanity that, yeah, they're, um, they're, they're higher than animals, but there's, you know, they're still guessing at the Encreate's uh, goal, goals mm -hmm. and, and desires, much like just as is said in the play. Yeah, no, true. Um, but I still think that that putting her on a different level means that somehow she's connected. It, and, and this is just a sense I get, but, but uh -huh. so much of New Sun always still suggests that the things that are going on behind the scenes are somehow not just chaotic and random like there is a sort of plan getting played out in some way or another um, well yes there is but remember yeah. that that aniri is operating on earth with you, you know he's not operating because he's been sent there for a particular purpose he's there trying to convince them that Severian's universe is something worth paying attention mm -hmm. to yeah yeah right no i get it i totally get it so and, and yeah, and that, that helps with the idea that, you know, the high rows aren't just this universal, perfect alien angel uh -huh. force or whatever, right? They're, they really are like when, when Afeta shows them underground and she's like, oh yeah, look, we've got all this machinery and lots of people want to, want to, want to live in that sort of perfect air world up there. But, but there's a lot of us working under the surface too, to make, you know, it, it sort of right. it throws the curtain aside and shows you that, yeah, things aren't, yeah, it's not all perfect. As so. above, so below. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So I'm still trying to think like what, yeah. I mean, she's obviously not like Megatherian opposed to whatever's going on. She just seems like she's doing something else. Yeah. Sometimes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like her actual yeah, actions are like, like inscrutable still. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I mean, it was like, I thought you worked for the, uh, for the autark. Uh, you know, we pay rent. Yeah. <laughs> so. yeah, yeah. She's there to give advice, but then she's hanging out with the witches, and yeah, so. yeah, she's hanging maybe out with Vizlas. Maybe she is the witches, not just yeah. is a witch, but I don't You're know. Right. So Marin is feeling dissed in this conversation by with the command, and she'd like to get off this subject. She says, "You shame me, mother. Shall I call him?" See, look at that. She's been lying about him about there being anyone else there, but now she's saying, "Oh, shall I call him?" And the mm -hmm. command says. He has heard us. He will come without your call. So once again, the whole point of them lying about who is there, that it, it's hard for me to figure out any kind of motives for anybody, even you know, looking back on it. And I think it really is odd that but Samara, who's engaged in such deception to hide Hildegrin, now announces them so casually. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Again, it's it's just all weird logic. You know, and even yeah. that thing, too, about like, you know, I feel like she's a helper. It's more like he's acting and people are doing like, oh, yes, yeah, she's she's a, a wise woman. She's a helper. <laughs> or it's more like an archetype 
kind of logic right. rather than any sort of like actual yeah. plot. Right, logic. right, right. Yeah. But maybe, maybe that's why Marin wanted Severian and company to leave or maybe not. I mean, there's just no explanation. I don't know. But as soon as Marin spoke, Severian could already hear, quote, the scrape of boots on the tiles of the other side of the roof, just like I think Dorcas had suggested. The Kamean messes with Severian a little. She says, I can see you are on edge. Maybe you better put Jalinta down so you can draw your sword and protect Dorcas. <laughs> and that's when, like a gangster movie, ha ha, look at your face. I was just kidding. There's nothing to fear. <laughs> but Severian really on, is on edge, and he sees the outline against the night sky of a tall hat. Imagine a top hat, but who knows? Some massive shoulders and a big head, and he puts Jalinta down and does draw Terminus Est. And a deep voice, no need for that. No need at all, young fellow. I'd have come out sooner to renew our acquaintance, but I didn't know the Chatelaine here wanted it. My master and yours sends his greetings. And it was Hildegrin. Although we've had discussion of him in the woods with Vodalus, this is the first that we've seen of him since Botanic Gardens. And he remembers Dorcas, naturally. And in this case, Agia has sw been swapped for Jalinta. He, he belittled Agia at the time as a sex worker. And Jalinta is something like that as well, right? Yep, yep. Okay, Craig, let's talk about merit now. We'll alert the listeners when things get dicey. Uh, you're all safe so far, all right? So St. Marin is a British saint that we don't really know much about because her story is hopelessly confused with other saints dating from the 6th and 10th centuries. Maybe she was a hermit or an abbotess. Uh, most of the time, Craig, these investigations into historical saints just reveal nothing. Most of the time, uh, if Wolf is doing anything, maybe he's riffing on a pun of the way the name sounds. Mm -hmm. A listener opined that uh, Roche or Rock and Trot's names are just pun for German words right and left. That's not always the case. I, I think St. Gildas's legend has something revealing to say about Holy Catherine and Severian's mother. In this case, however, I think there surely has to be something going on here because St. Marin's original name is Madwena. Hmm. What, I might ask you, is Marin's connection to Morwenna? Remember that Severian made a mental connection between Morwenna and Thecla's hair, except that Thecla's hair was wavy and Morwenna's was straight. And Marin is just a bit player in this scene. Nothing of interest. But in speculating regarding Severian's mother, John Clute did consider her. However, uh, most often, Marin is a favorite candidate for Severian's sister. Right now, I, who emphatically declare that Valeria is Severian's sister, and also is so is Adillo. Well, I'm not going to balk at the possibility that Marin could be Severian's sister, and so could Morwenna. I see Severian's sister everywhere, just like his mother. In Consider the Autarch, Ava says to Severian, Severian is one of those brother sister names, isn't it? Severian and Severa, do you have a sister? Uh, and he says, I don't know. If I do, she's a witch. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so pretty good. All right, now let's break 
out beyond our established territory. And so if you haven't read the book of the short sun, then, you know, skip to the next. It actually turns out to be 10 minutes before we get away from the short sun spoilers. In Return to the World, Chapter 13, the protagonist, the Rajan, dream travels to Earth to the time, it seems to me, prior to the events of the Book of the New Sun, to the very Madachin Tower, and encounters young Severian, the apprentice himself. And it seems improbable, and some readers have called it pure fan service, but I don't think it's improbable coincidence. I think Wolf is trying to say that it was the opposite. Uh, but let's go on to Marin. In this story, young Severian already knows Marin, or a Marin here at the mm -hmm. tower, and he brings her to the Rajan. And the Rajan describes her as, quote, an unhealthy-looking young woman, uh, so pale and gaunt. Her voice is shrill and unpleasant. She has a face like a mask. When she smiles at him, the Rajan says, quote, I want to write that the young witch smiled again, but it was the same smile, which had remained on her face as if forgotten. <laughs> which is so cool. Just so cool. Yeah, yeah. It's, obviously, this is a mask, right? It's, uh, it's, it's some kind of mechanical. It looks like a sort of like a, a, a real face with an uncanny valley, but also she has to think to operate it and, and to make the right facial expressions. The last the Rajan sees of her is when young Severian offers to show everyone his dog. And in the corridors, the Rajan sees Marin's gaping mouth and the utter blankness of her large, dark eyes. And Severian says that although she is a witch, she, quote, has no powers. When Jolly, the Inhuma, who in Dream Travel is almost an ordinary human woman, except that, you know, like the Rajan in Dream Travel, she has no internal organs and does not need to eat, but can if she wants. She introduces Marin to the Rajan and says, I don't know who the boy is, but of course that boy is Severin. And Marin says, he's my brother. We're brothers and sisters, we witches and the torturers. So there are a whole lot of questions about this encounter. It seems impossible to work them out, but I have, <laughs> except for Marin, I think. And we'll address them some six years or so in the future when we finish <laughs> Earth of the New Sun. The case that Marin is Severian's sister, the fabled sister, seems very strong. But I do doubt that even if it is true, that it's as simple as that. So one additional tidbit, the Inhumi who disguise themselves as human do have human souls, but whose bodies are winged reptiles and they have trouble with animals. And the Yuma have a power to affect the perception of humans so that with, you know, with just some wigs and costumes and makeup, their disguises are completely convincing. But this power does not seem to work on animals. So the Inhuma cannot, for example, ride horses or make friends with dogs. In dream travel, this debility is removed because they are no longer faking their human appearance. Well, guess who else has a problem with animals? That's right, Marin. Marin has trouble with animals too, Jolly said as she went out. So, I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> uh, well, she can't just be a human if she's. Doesn't this suggest that she's got? That there's something unnatural about her, yeah, and about her. 
and it it also it also gets weird because the whole inhuma thing of course doesn't come up at all in new sun certainly not in claw of the conciliator at least i think not unless I, yeah i don't the think Humean being a serpent like creature and him looking inside her is supposed to suggest that she is then thing but then to suggest that that whole stuff that doesn't even come up for you know book of right. book that's that's a that's a hard that's yeah a well hard, i think and small. i think i think the rajan is doubling down on the fact that she's not if she's not it's not that she's an inhuma yeah he says first i thought that she was an inhuma like we had seen in Guyan, but yeah. no she's she's not an inhuma it's something else but anyway yeah. but it's I, uh, yeah and i don't i don't know enough i certainly don't know i i'm not confident enough about short sun to be able to say you know what might be a good sort of analogy for that there but I also think that, you know, when she says we're brothers and sisters, she leaves that out by saying, you know, the witches and torturers are brothers and sisters. You know, that's one way of saying, yeah, we're not really brother and sister. We're <laughs> well, maybe they should have all been called Severa if that's merely what right. it is. So right. Yeah. It's so it's 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 one of those weird, you know, it seems like he added that extra extra thing on there just to like mess with part. us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but but I guess the other issue I have is that I it gets back to the thing of, okay, well, if Marin, this character Marin is Severian's sister, what do we learn about it? Um, you know, maybe it's there to be a clue for who his mother was somewhere. That would kind of make sense. Mm -hmm. um, as far as why she has to be here at the crux of everything, when we also learn about Severian as Apapunchow, I don't know. I mean, um, that that gets weirder. Like, why do we have to have her present at that? Mm -hmm. And why would it be important for his sister to be seen as a sort of naive kind of person who says the right things, but doesn't know them? You know, is right. that, is that like, you know, maybe. Well, you can have someone as a foil, is, but yeah. yeah, I just don't. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not convinced it's that kind of story. Yeah. With this one, this is one where I, I have, again, lots of possibilities, but I don't know because this chapter and the next one seem like they're written in such a weird way to mm. me where, where the specific details of why does this person move here and why does this person answer that question that way? Like it's always dreamlike and off kilter and not nothing's quite perfectly straight. You know, it's right. it, the wolf is good at doing that at any time, but it's really ramped up in in these sections like they everything about this is totally dreamlike to me um where we see all these images happen in relationship and in sequence and whatnot but there's there's not the sort of normal story connection between like how things follow so the fact that she's there could be for all kinds of reasons i don't I, i'm not really sure i don't know if in this chapter itself there's a whole lot to draw attention to her like the thing that as his sister, I mean, the things that make sense are even then kind of elusive. Like the fact that she is a young witch, just like he's a young torture. Mm -hmm. The weirdness about their face being masks should remind you of Agilis and Agilia and masks, mm -hmm. even though he specifically will call out, you know, the the other masks of the of the Hyrule 
he doesn't mention Agila and Agilus's mask. That's, yeah, he never mentions it again. But, <laughs> but, you know, it seems like that's sort of very blatant because you left that big mystery about Agilus still wearing a mask open. So maybe there's that because then they're brother and sister. So maybe this mask thing, you know, but that's that's such a stretch like that. That's a it's it's really hard. And it's a lot of sort of analogical thinking rather than actual logic thinking. So I'm, I'm not sure. I think it's definitely like she, of all the characters in the book for my favorite possibility for Severian sister, it's her mm -hmm. both because of short son, um, but also because of, you know, her age and, and what she kind of did, but I don't know. And I, and I just, I'm not really sure in this moment what that would give us or why it would be important. So I don't know. It's sort of that's I think that's one thing that lots of people will want to talk about from this chapter. Um, but it's in the end, not my total big takeaway. So but I, <laughs> I, I know you've got a little more you want to think about for that. So I yeah, I've got a lot of more. I, I, I don't. There's, I think, a implied equivalence between Marin and Morwenna. I think. Yeah, that name in with her background, that's that is interesting. Yeah. The, and the, I think Monwena uh, or whatever. Yeah. And I just I don't know. Severian's sister is uh, just the topic is a mess for me. I mean, I I feel like okay, yeah, Severian has a sister, but in I th I, I believe that Thecla is in a sense Severian's sister, but by but she's not that sister. If assuming that Severian does have a twin, then that's not the one. And it does make sense that it'd be sent over to the witches. And yet there's enough that's off about Marin. And there are enough clues uh, pointing at other people that make me think, I don't know. What would be, I mean, there's, there's innumerable things that I feel like, well, if I just understood this, I could solve Marin, I, I bet. <laughs> and then, but I don't have those things, so... So what I actually think is really interesting about the chapter, though, is that all of this sort of mystery and confusion about the witches, there is definitely a big part of this chapter, which is all kind of about Severian not getting what goes on with women. Like there, there's a big aspect of that. I mean, and it's 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 something that he's talked about before, but with this, like, I feel like part of and, and I don't know if this is intentional, but I feel like it is. But part of the reason why I think the witches are made are meant to be sort of inscrutable is because Wolf really wants there to be this sort of women to be inscrutable for Severian. Yeah. And, and not not in the sort of goofy way of, you know, men don't understand women and he just, yeah. you know, and, and he's always just out for sex or whatever. Not that like I do think that it it's in line with his not knowing his mother kind of thing mm -hmm. like there's there's definitely that whole aspect to it and that part i think really comes in here it's also really interesting that that's what happens right before we get the chapter where we're going to find out that that he is this other sun god figure right like that's really the big if there is a takeaway of what i think in the end you're supposed to realize about the next chapter it's that severian is apropunchao and that means that he was an ancient sun god and that, uh -huh. that he's so, so that is sort of like you are the conciliator, all that kind of thing. You're starting to finally get proof of all those identities coming together. Okay, well, that's the case. We get Severian finally knowing who he really is, but right before it, it comes with not knowing where you're coming from and sort of not knowing much about women, not knowing much about your mother. Is this 
cool sort of weird symbolic metaphor for how to make something out of nothing. Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't know if that, if that's totally convincing to a lot of people, but I think that this idea that Severian starts to really learn his final destiny after coming from a place that is totally confusing and inscrutable for him that he can't figure out that he can't relate to is sort of showing the promise of, of what evolution is like. Mm. In the <laughs> so that's, that's my sort of big story thing. I think it's really cool. Um, I think it's, it's not like, it's sort of weird to say that Severian doesn't get the feminine is actually not a feminist issue at all. It seems like it's more <laughs> about sort of how to overcome really kind of that nothingness that she talks about or, like or how your, to or your or yeah his, yeah. his origin his yeah. other half i don't know yeah yeah that there's something like that is going on here that's that's at least the way it can make sense to me because at a plot level i don't know that it does like what does this have to do with Vodalus wanting hildegrin to be out here to do something with like all that whole setup has nothing to do that i can figure out with what happens in the actual next chapter and when he figures out who he really is right right like it just seems like no that was just sort of a mere plot contrivance to get severian to have this experience with apu punchow yeah yeah but it wasn't you know it's it's more like the kind of thing where providence could put this together but no manipulative person or or set of whatever's could put this together so it's almost like the specific details of how to get there don't matter it's really just that you get to the right point at, at the proper time and whatnot so I don't know, but these two chapters really are bugging me as, as I've been reading them and talking about them because they, they really, like I said, at that, there's a certain point in the middle of this chapter where I stop understanding why anybody does anything for any purpose. It's like, yeah. they just don't make like, why do we have to walk over there? Why do we have to leave Jalenta here? Why do we have to, I don't, I, you know, they don't ever yeah. really make sense. I, I think this, this chapter seems to bother you a lot more than the play did. For some reason, yeah, yeah, the play yeah. made more sense in once to me at least once we started talking about it. But something about this one, it, it's also because it's not like the way I just talked about it is more like that sort of allegorical meaning of the play. But this is presented not as allegory, right? It's presented as a straightforward story where you know people are doing things that their boss told them to do, but none <laughs> of that makes sense. So I don't know, um, but I. I, I kind of like that sort of more archetype level way to look at it. And I don't yeah. know if that's what Wolf intended. Truly have no idea. Um, but it does seem like if you're looking for another place where, you know, the universe is making people get to the right place so that they have certain epiphanies or something like that, that's the only kind of causation I really that really makes sense here. The actual yeah. sort of specifics of why do the witches need to be here and are they working with Vodalus and all that kind of stuff. I, I don't know. I don't get it. Well, I don't know, Craig. I've, I've taken this as far as I can. <laughs> it's, a, it's a weird I, one. It's, I know no more about Marin now than when I started. She's still confusing. Uh, Valeria is still confusing. Morwenna is kind of a mystery. I know there's something going on there. I've always known there's something going on there. I don't know what it means. Uh, I don't know why Valeria is, is somehow in Adelo. It's, the whole thing is messed up, and I don't see any hope for it. But here we are. So if oh, you've got say, just say, let me just say, but I'll say one other thing. 
I saw somebody say, and I don't remember if it was like on Facebook or Reddit or something, but they were complaining about Wolf, but, oh no, it was on Twitter somewhere. I think it was, it wasn't something you retweeted. It was just mm -hmm. something out there, but um, it was that they thought that a lot of Wolf's stranger stories weren't really puzzles meant to be solved or that he didn't necessarily know what was going on, but he was just really good at being able to write confusing, suggestive stories that seemed like they had a meaning and a, a thought <laughs> for them, but were just strange enough no, to keep no. you reading. I don't. If see you're that. looking for that kind of thing, I feel like these couple chapters might. Uh, okay. Be yes. An example. Yeah. I don't know that they are. Like I said, I, I, I default to the position that he knows what he's doing. I'll, I'll trust him. <laughs> but like I said, the way that these couple are done, um, if somebody has a better way to make sense of sort of the minutia of the action in these things, I'd mm -hmm. love to hear it. Um, yeah, that actually yeah. fits with the text and, and the specific things that they say. Right. Uh, because I have just a lot of, yeah, I, give us I some, just get weirded out. Yeah. Give us some, tell us what the motivations of these people are. The witches, Baron, behavior is just strange to me really i, I don't understand the the the, uh, the lie hi, hiding the, yeah the lie the lie which she's going to just casually drop at, mm -hmm. at some later point uh, i don't understand but look if you've got an answer then please reach out to us with your ideas and your other comments your thoughts your corrections your complaints and bring them to us on the facebook group the subreddit the twitter uh, the email the patreon site the patron slack channel you can find out how to do all that on the show notes leave a review on apple podcasts or stitcher or wherever it is you you know talk about your podcasts and tell your wolf rings friends most importantly that's what you should do tell your wolf ring friends but until you hear from us again in which we will still be sitting here among the witches <laughs> may the moira favor you yeah i've got nothing witty to add to that this time there is only one place to go And it's always over there When you get there, you'll be told There is only one place to go Traveler on his way. 
um, uh, Monkey Man. Why did I, my brain just <laughs> Twitter? <died>. Um, <laughs> no, um, uh, Aniri, uh, about King Father Aniri. No, <laughs> oh, sorry, Father Aniri. Chapter 30 The Badger Again. They started talking as soon as you did. Oh, crap. <laughs> That's okay. You want to do it again? All right. Yep. Yep. Trying to fix things on the fly, and I'm wrong. So always do you like the way. little plus plus slash plus that you got going on there i like to kind of keep track of what's going on and it becomes and it all starts to settle out uh when i get to the end see that that 29 it's probably closer to the 29 than anything else cool um and i have my reasons probably about one month since the feast of holy catherine put that in there take everything else out all right so what you've been up to um, I have just been out of energy lately. Not a lot. Is it not is it extra work or is it just out of uh, some of both and and work is a lot of just very repetitive things right now and it's just kind of draining. And it's like oh. you know, you have the same conversations over <laughs> and over again and the same review sessions and oh. it's just kinda Yeah, and just just yeah, Are when it's the same thing over and all. Because that huh? also makes you feel kind of tired. Oh, <laughs> I should I should take more vitamin D. It's um, not really winter out there, up there in the... It's supposed to snow again tomorrow. So. Oh, it's going to be 70s tomorrow. Yeah. It was a little yeah, on the cool yeah. side. 60, but... It's just time... Yeah, the, the thing about having to do the same courses over and over again, like, it's all fine and dandy when I get to do more of the behind-the-scenes stuff. Mm-hmm when it's just having to, yeah, like run the same review sessions and the same lectures and the same things over and over again, it just, yeah. it starts to like, well, it, so they, uh, it really guess, does like take your energy away, like drains you to be like, I got to do this again. <laughs> it's like, yeah. How was your um, trip? It was, it was good. It was, it was busy, just very tiring. So it's not it, easy to move across the, the whole of the Mediterranean. No, no, no. But it, but it was good. I mean, it was really good to see all the stuff and definitely was the kind of more, more along the lines of like a box checking trip than oh. one where you kind of imagine, I mean, like, you know, wander and find cool <laughs> little places and stuff, but, but it was good. And Sam had a lot of fun. I think, well, Sam was sick half the time, but at least when oh. he was moving, uh he was doing okay he was he got to see the stuff and ollie got to see things too so no it was good it was good it was just very very tiring too at the same time but, <laughs> but good i, I often feel that very, way very uh... <laughs> yeah in life yeah <laughs> so but no and uh yeah so i don't know i just it, it's one of those things i i don't like i don't like force march travel stuff oh and, yeah and it was well very, i mean the isn't the mediterranean sea it's like three thousand miles something like that yeah, I mean, we went from a small, like a little Greek island, then to Athens, then to Rome, and that was a, that was enough. So over ten days, <laughs> so that's still plenty of moving around. Wow! But no, definitely, definitely good. Saw a lot of stuff, um, but yeah, still recovering sleep wise. <laughs> so, what was your favorite part, though? We were talking about that. I think my favorite thing was there's um, a temple of Poseidon that's a couple hours outside of Athens um, on the south. And it's kind of like right on the one of the tips of of Attica, um, not not like on the very southern tip of Greece or something, but on one mm-hmm. of the little 
promontories that comes out. Um, it's just a gorgeous spot. It's just like you're there's this cliff that's over the sea and you've got the ruins of the temple up there and it just feels like a totally sort of romantic ruin in this gorgeous place and yeah just really <laughs> cool so um i mean the museums that we saw there was a lot of good stuff there i just saw the coliseum i became sort of viscerally now terrified of the roman empire <laughs> just <for> the- <laughs> I mean, in some ways, seriously, like actually seeing the stuff in Rome and realizing the size of what they had back then, even, uh, I mean, you totally get how just absolutely how blown away like, maybe people were force. Oh, yeah. Just this like massive force that they were that, you know, just could conscript massive armies and conquer huge swaths of whatever um, and made the whole sort of martial military culture of rome really really hit home when you Mm. just like yeah see so much of that stuff there even the the houses like we got to walk through the roman forum um and some of the stuff that you see and then you were reminded of the ways that you know like citizens were forced like every male citizen basically was a soldier first and foremost and Mm. just just crazy just just yeah and terrifying (laughs) <laughs> and the number of slaves, like, I mean, all this stuff I knew, but then when you're actually there and you see it in the context of also the size of the things that they could build and just the sheer sort of amount of money and manpower that they could throw to, to at these giant projects, just in the midst of also, you know, conquering random peoples around the world, <laughs> just definitely is... Yeah, it was scary. I was like, I was thinking, what would it be like to to not be part of that or to always be afraid that they're going to we're going to lose you. your status? And yeah, just yeah. Oh, it's terrifying. So, yeah, Greek society, even though they were still filled with slaves and whatnot, it just seemed slightly more harmonious somehow. But yeah, oh so no, they not, were always fighting to kill each other. Oh, I know, <laughs> I know, I know. It's like at least it just had this different sort of vibe to it, whereas the Romans mm. were, I guess, in some ways, much more honest. <laughs> they were just like, nope, <laughs> we are a conquering society. That's what we do. So, well, yeah, well, maybe it's because it's simply because, at, you know, at least by the time the empire came around, they could. Oh, right? yeah. They, for, with Greece, you had all of these little city states that, that, at least until, you know, Macedonia, that they were, you know, they they all had their pretension. Mm-hmm. Athens wanted to have an empire and and built one. Yep. Uh, Spartans had Sparta had their own empire, and but but they they were always kind of having to look over their shoulder. Even Sparta couldn't really mm-hmm. hold it for very long. Yeah. No, and 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 then, uh, we haven't even talked about Thebes. Thebes in the north, and mm-hmm. right? yeah. So no, it's not that the Greeks were necessarily kinder <laughs> or anything or more <laughs> humane to anything but just yeah i don't know you you mix that attitude with the the obvious i don't know it's just the thing of like you're you're there and then you just feel it instead of Mm. get the point um it's not a story anymore it's like you know oh okay i yeah okay i i see the size of the arena that the gladiators had to you know, you've got all these people screaming for you to die like right there. And it's like, and that's okay. And that's, that's what they do to show off their social status. And that, that's terrifying. Okay. So yeah, that was definitely a takeaway. I think it, it really did leave a different color for a lot of the Roman empire stuff. But, you said you went to Pompeii? 
Yeah, we took one day and went out there. Um, that was just really neat. I mean, just to see the how much was preserved was cool. Like mm -hmm. one of the coolest things was um, there was a brothel in there that some of the few frescoes that survived were the basically the menu in the brothel. I mean, it's, it's like, there's just porn on the walls of just like all these different positions, but they're, they think that what it was, was literally like a menu of like, you know, you're coming through, maybe not everybody speaks Latin. And so you just kind of point out what you want But at the same time, like you're walking through this little building and you're like, holy crap, that's like a, that's an actual 2000 year old fresco that's still mm, sitting yeah. there on the wall and you see the colors and you see yeah, it was. Yeah, because uh, Vesuvius really cool. just basically encased it in amber. So. Yeah, yeah, and I didn't. I hadn't quite realized. Like, and I didn't really. I don't think I'd ever really paid attention to exactly how it happened. I just thought destroyed city, but they're like, yeah, probably you know, because you can of course see Vesuvius from there, from where you are, and they're like, yeah. So if it explodes, you know, it's not like the city is immediately encased in ash and lava. Like, like they said, no most people had time to get away. And what happened was that let's say there were, they think between 40 and 50,000 people in the city. Um, the vast majority of them were able to leave. And then you had some families, some slaves, some people who were like, ah, we'll stay, we'll, we'll, we'll hang on or, you know, we'll, we'll risk it or whatever. Um, but then what happened was they think it, there was a second, um, eruption in the middle of the night that was much more gas and ash. And that then that as a cloud was the first thing that started to land on the city. And basically all those people suffocated. And it was, if it was in the middle of the night, it was possibly while they were asleep. And that's one reason why they think they found so many bodies um, that didn't seem necessarily in total distress. Like they were just like, they were still literally like on their beds or in the bedroom um, or things like that. Like there were some things where it was obviously somebody was trying to protect someone else. Um, but there were other ones where, yeah, it, it seems very much like people may have, yeah, died in their sleep or something like that, um, which was weird, but, but a weird, you know, weird hypothesis of, of how things happen. So, and then it just got, you know, covered in ash and land and everything else over time. So, um, but yeah, I mean, the roads, seeing that getting to see the the domus like the the uh um the houses of the nobles and the wealthy people that were just like connected to everything and and the little layouts of the of the the ways that the rooms were done and all i know it was gorgeous it was really cool um very different sense you got of a city like you actually like because of that, that brothel and there were a couple others where you're obviously in a sort of little red light district, but you just turn one corner and there's some nobleman's house and they're like, we don't know if that was like actually the pimp who ran the thing or it made money off of it or just some other guy who just happened to live like right around the corner from the brothel district or whatever. So, um, but yeah. Cool to see. Pompeii didn't didn't have like I didn't have that like mystical connection to <laughs> you know like here's what it's like to to be in a Roman city, but it was really really cool. So, yeah, and the Acropolis was hot, just very very hot because you're way up on a top of a giant rock in the baking sun. Oh, 
Did I lose you? I think I lost you. Oh, there you are. Sorry. Oh, sorry. Back. Sorry about that. I had a, uh, I had it on mute. Didn't realize it. No worries. Yeah. So, um, what was it? Was it, it's hot in the spring, I guess, in the Mediterranean. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, some, most of the days were fine, but there were definitely when the sun was out, like there's no, like in Pompeii, there's no shade, like the way things mm. are set up when you get in there, there's no, I mean, obviously none of the roofs survived or anything. So everything was just, <laughs> and we were there in the middle of the day. So that was hot, hot, hot. No well, no, wait a minute. It was hot, but you're, you're, you're you have, a, well, uh, you, have, not, you have a low tolerance for heat. Yes, I so. do indeed. <laughs> and, it, and you know, it's May. It's not like we're there in the middle of right. July or something. So, no, my, my sense of hot is not everybody else's, but I was still, I'm hot. <laughs> I was still very hot. <laughs> and it's, you know, in the direct sun. And so, yeah, definitely hot. Wow. Um, but Well, we had a, uh, <laughs> we had a great mouse hunt here at the house. So For actual mice. Yeah. Yes. We had, um, so we had, uh, you know, they, they built just recently built this area out in the middle of a big field. Um, and I'm in, I'm in Princeton, Texas right now. So, uh, you know, all the houses are, are kind of new and, uh, you know, if anyone wants to come visit me, they should, they should have, <laughs> there's a, got an extra room. So the, um, so yeah, we, my wife was, was, we were in bed middle of the night and she gets up and uh says well there was a bug crawling on me oh, what? No. <laughs> it was right on my neck she gets up and I, I said really oh well we looked around we didn't see anything he says you know the truth is kind of heavy for a bug i couldn't even believe it i think <laughs> maybe i was dreaming so she goes out she now she's awake so she goes outside next thing you know she sees sees a mouse come out of the bedroom kind of wait giving her a wave oh, <laughs> head off down the hall and uh oh my gosh so now she's really freaked out because the mouse has decided to you know check us out while we're sleeping so uh so the next day i went out and i got you know i got traps i set them up and she uh now she's saying, why do we have to kill him? <laughs> so, <laughs> well, because he's vermin, honey. And uh, the uh, so I, I set them up, but she's, you know, she's upset about the whole thing the whole time. And so I, I set them up all over the house um, and I don't catch anything to begin with. And then we, we go out of town. So I set them up and so, and set one up in my office as well. And I, when we come back, I've caught one in my office, the dead mouse. So I, t you know, take it, get rid of it, dispose of it. Yeah. And then, so we're now we're all relieved. We caught the mouse. I don't know how he got in the office, but he got in the office. And uh, then it's really starts storming. Just really, we get these really major thunder and lightning storms out here in the spring. And, because this is a kind of a, until like 15 years ago, this was like just a bunch of little double wides mm -hmm. out here. And, and now it's just exploded and built up. So it's the infrastructure can't really handle it. So we don't, we often have blackouts here. So, which is what happened. We had a blackout. We're sitting around in candlelight. And I tell you what, that <laughs> mouse was crawling up my leg. Seriously? Yeah. <laughs> yes. 
I'm <laughs> freaking out. So now, you know, okay, we we still there's still at least one. So we see him, and he's he's so fast. He's like a shadow. He's like a ninja, really. I mean, oh yeah, he, he zips by, and you think, did I see that? Did I see? I, yeah, I, I'm pretty sure I saw it. Um, so I set up the, the a trap over in the side. Oh, oh, before that, I had set up a trap in the side, and I didn't. I, I, I did the, 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 in the one in the kitchen didn't catch a mouse, but there was blood all over it. So I assume wow. there's like a mouse with one arm who's right. feeling, you know, you know, vengeful. And, uh, but this isn't the one I, we've never actually found that one. And, no, I, uh, we, in my last house, we would have mice all the time. And I put a, the worst thing was, I remember setting a trap on one side of my basement where I was pretty sure there, they could get in cause the floor wasn't, particularly flush with the wall right there and whatnot. I'm like, that could be a place. So I come down the next morning, the trap's gone. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, uh, what the hell? It was all the way across the room on the other side. And this is a little gruesome, but the trap had come down like halfway through the mouse's head. And yeah. all I can imagine is that the thing somehow rolled and got... Oh to the other side of the room before it actually died. And I'm like, this just, uh, <laughs> just what a horrible way to die. But well, no, so I remember like, seeing them there. Like they, I would see them out of the corner of my eye. Like I remember reading out, yeah. I was up late one night reading and all of a sudden you just see this like between yeah. the wall and the like coffee table or whatever. And I'm like, Oh no. And now I got to find yeah. that thing and chase it. So this one, so now we, my wife sees him. He's, he's, he's living underneath the, uh, the, the the refrigerator mm. and uh we before we we could see them um that they were they're trying to get back into the office where they i guess where they got into the house which is connected to the garage mm. and so uh but the, we have one left and he's living under the the um the 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 refrigerator so i you know i set them up now i've got like six little traps and i've set them up all around the refrigerator and long about no oh, eleven o'clock, I hear shop, and you know it's got him. Mm -hmm. So I got the last one. So the uh, so my, then my wife goes out the next day and she buys a live trap to catch him. And she we set it up in the in the garage. And then yesterday we uh, we got a, we got a mouse in it. It's they're they're all little tiny things. Mm -hmm. And uh, so this one I I went out by the by the the fish pond and uh set him free hopefully he's a wiser mouse and uh <laughs> we'll stay away from human places now the idea that they're especially if they're like crawling across you in the middle of the night like that's yeah, that's, that's just yeah, rude that's, that's, that yes exactly yeah i mean <laughs> or crawling like, up your leg so yes, just i mean have a little more yeah Act a little do more your, mousy, guys. Do your mouse thing and just stay small and out of sight. And it'll be right, exactly. Well, I mean, he's got, and, and you know, they you can't you can't keep them. You can't just ignore them because they they will poop on everything, which mm -hmm. can cause respiratory diseases. Yep. And yep. also, you know, they don't have any respect. They'll they'll chew everything up. Like yep. he was trying to get it back into the office. So he was chewing up on the weather stripping under the door. Mm -hmm. And when I pull out the, the, the refrigerator to look for him and no, he's trying to gnaw his way through the wall. So, yeah. yeah. So there's nothing, nothing to be done about it, but it was him or me. So. <laughs>
<laughs> that sucks. Well. All right. Well, you want to get started? Where did we leave off? I yep, think I thought what, we. Um, 